With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Okay. Um, Brother Greg just read, read for us in the, in the Gospel of Luke the account that uh, Luke had of the paralyzed man. And what we've done is we've looked through the account of the the leper and the paralyzed man, and we have seen the sovereignty of God and the grace of God. So far in our study, we've looked and we've seen that that God in his great grace sent Christ to give the true biblical message of the gospel, the only gospel message that can truly save, right? Christ came into the world, and the world did not know him, and even his own people did not know him. The, the leprous man came running to Christ, and he said, if you can, you can heal me. He sought the mercy of Christ, but he did not seek the grace of Christ. He wanted his physical ailment to be healed, right? He wanted his leprosy to be healed and for himself to be cleansed of that leprosy. That's what he wanted. And every single man in the world wants whatever ailment they have. They want that ailment healed. Do you have a bad life? Do you have bad bad relationships? Is there somebody treated you wrong? Has something happened in your life that you want to be better? Do you want to be richer? Do you want to be happier? Will God you know, heal those things, make them all better? But how many people run to grace and cry out for grace and plead for grace? Well, the Bible declares that none of us come after God, that God is the one that comes for us. This paralyzed man could do nothing. And I want you to think of yourself as that paralyzed man. That paralyzed man, he lay there, and he had the ability to do exactly nothing. He had the ability to do exactly nothing. And God in his great grace came along. Christ proved his deity. You know what Christ did? He didn't just heal the man. What did he say to him? Man, your sins are forgiven. He didn't just say, I'm going to heal you. He forgave his sin. And to prove he had power over his sin, he showed that he had power over his flesh. And God in his grace, Christ being God in the flesh, came and he healed this man. And what we've been studying is, is this act of God's grace, something that is just limited, if you will, to to um, just this case, or do we see God's grace in our lives? Have we seen grace throughout the history of the church? Have we seen grace, and, and what is grace, and is grace necessary for your salvation and for your life? Or is grace just something that you conjure up and that you can work towards? Is it something that you fight for, or is it something that God has done for you? Well, um, as we've been studying this for the past few weeks, Everybody will remember that we've, um, we actually started talking about Augustine and Pelagius. Now, for those of you that don't know, Augustine and Pelagius were born on 354 A.D., and both of them were monks, okay? Uh, however, Pelagius 
happened to be a monk who was also an itinerant preacher. And that's what kind of the similarity in between the two of them, of them being monks. Uh, Pelagius was born and raised in the British Isles, and he entered the monastic life early, very early in his life. And he surrounded himself with Christian Christians of a Christian order. Now, I'm not going to say they were all Christians because I'm going to tell you everybody here is not Christian, even if you claim Christ. Okay? Uh, he surrounded himself by men who were at least outwardly Christian and moral and upright and, and righteous, at least outwardly. Now, I'm not saying they all were or they all weren't. You know, this was during the, right at about 370, uh, when he was about 20, 25 years old. Maybe he, he could have actually been as, as early as 17 years old. He could have went into this monastic life. Well, um, he surrounds himself by, by these people, but Augustine born in the same year, does something completely different. He lived just like you and me. He partied. He went wild. He lived out his debaucherous lifestyle and his confessions. He actually talks about all the wickedness that he did, all the way from the time he was born. And he traces out his lineage of sin and wickedness, and he confesses to the world what type of man he truly was. Well, he was uh, about 32 years old when when God in his great grace saved him. He was born again at about 32 years of age. And in, in, his, in his being born again, he began to really focus on what was his part in grace, what was his part in his salvation. And he recognized that he was a sinner from the moment of birth, and the scriptures bore that out. And he began to teach and to talk to people. He would show them that they needed uh, the grace of God. They needed Christ to do the good things that they do. Well, Pelagius, he travels to Rome in his advanced years, and Pelagius saw vice and wickedness, like I told you last time. So he began to preach, preach about Christ and him crucified. He began telling people about Jesus Christ. He heard many people say that they couldn't help but sin because they were born that way. You know, we talked about this last week. Anybody heard that new song out, We Were Born That Way? Well, see, everybody's born in sin. So the excuse of I was born that way, I can't help myself, is just that. It's an excuse. What it is is a way for you to say, since God made me this way, it's his fault, and he can't judge me. To which Pelagius would say, yes, you can help it, and you're totally free to do whatever you want to do. He would say that you don't need God for anything special. You can do the right thing and attain your own salvation. Does that sound like the message that we hear today in most churches? Yes. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do the best you can, and God will take that, and he will take you along the way. Thus Pelagius taught the perfection of man by his own works apart from God's what he called special aid. So Pelagius says, you don't need God's special inner working of aid. God has graced you, and by grace, he would say, the commonality of man, just your, your, own, your, your manly nature. You're, you're the, the natural man. You can lift up yourself by your own will and your own bootstraps, and you don't need God. Pelagius also taught that Adam had a perfectly free will and that his sin affected himself alone and no other. Well, there's one truth there that Adam had a free will. He was born, uh, uh, created with a free will. Pelagius also taught that Adam 
made his own destiny. Now, you're going to want to remember this. He made his own destiny upon the first act of his will. Upon the first act of his will. Though he was born morally neutral, Pelagius said, and not actually holy, according to Pelagius, Adam could have chosen to be holy or he could have chosen to sin, and it was completely up to him, and God had nothing to do with any of that. God didn't know what was going to happen. It was totally up to him. What you're going to notice here is every one of you are saying, there's something wrong. What is this a denial of? It's a denial of the purpose and plan of God for creation. It's a perfect denial of the absolute sovereignty of God. It's a pure denial of his omniscience. And this is Pelagius' argument. Pelagius also taught the, the denial of original sin. He said, we don't have a sin nature. There was no original sin because when Adam sinned, it only affected himself. He says, Adam sinned. And Paul only affected himself. Of course, I, I told you last time, if you want to re, uh, read uh, just a small little refutation of that, go to Romans 5, 12 through 21 and read that when you get time. He says, since all men die, Pelagius had to teach that Adam would have died anyway. Did you catch that? Since all men die, he says, Pelagius says, well, Adam would have died anyway because he could not account for the fact that all men die apart from sin. Pelagius had to teach that Adam would have died as well, and his death had nothing to do with sin. He said that the only thing Adam's, Adam's fall did was to set a bad example. It was a bad example, wasn't it? He said the only thing Adam's uh, uh, sin did was to set a bad example. He said his death, was not a punishment brought to mankind for their sins, but is a natural part of human existence. Because every soul is created by God, it cannot have any sin in it. So he taught perfection. He taught moral and physical, spiritual perfection. Now you've got to remember where he comes from. He didn't come from a debaucherous lifestyle. He lived where? Lived in a monastery, right? With all these pious and religious, righteous people. And when he goes to Rome... He sees all these people acting contrary to what he knows. And so what he does is he lashes out. Boy, he's angry. Well, he said that, well, uh, he, he would deny the federal headship of Adam and thus Christ as well. You catch that? The federal headship. Have you guys ever heard of the federal headship of Adam? It's what he's talking about, the fact that he is the federal head. He is the first one to sin. He was the first one to bring us into sin. And truly, if he had been righteous and holy, then we would have all been in that same state. We could have all been in that same state, but he didn't do that. And he led us into his sin. He says that every man is made as a new Adam with perfect and equal free will and ability to choose equally the good or the evil. Is there a problem there? He says that we are autonomous. We are self-governing people who make choices and exercise our own will as Adam did. Though man, uh, though man sin, he does not have to, and he is not a slave to sin and unrighteousness. He completely denied Christ's account that those who sin are slaves to sin. He completely denied all those things. Now, talking about Jesus, 
Pelagius taught that Jesus came to live as an example on how men can actually live sinlessly. Did you know that? Jesus showed us the easiest path to heaven, he says. Jesus did not impute righteousness to anyone because all men are born holy and righteous. As Jesus said, be righteous. God said in the Old Testament, be holy as, as, as I am holy. And God would never say that you were to do something you couldn't do naturally. You see a problem here? The problem is is a heretical teaching from a false psychology. He says, he says, he goes on and says that Jesus did die for our individual sins, but his death was not necessary because man could choose at any moment not to ever sin again. So Jesus Christ, he says, died for each and every individual sin, but they're not all connected. So if you sin this morning, in 10 seconds from now, you can decide, well, I'm just going to be righteous and holy, so that sin doesn't count. Christ died for that one, so what? Okay, so now you're righteous and holy again, but you can also lose that. You can also sin again, and you have to have Christ to pay for that. Now, here's what he says, and this is amazing to me that Pelagius came to this standard. He actually says that you can, you can uh, lose that holy position for that moment, but you're not unholy. You're not unrighteous in sin. You're not dead in sin. And it, it, it is an amazing uh, twist of Scripture. In, in fact, I would say that, that most people would, would, would believe that it's a complete denial of all biblical Scripture. Amen? Okay. He says that Jesus, um, let's see, because no sin was imputed to man, substitutionary atonement was not necessary. Well, you go to God righteous on your own account. And what he would say is this. Did you do something good today? That was actually you that did it and you deserve the credit. That was actually your good work and you deserve the credit. So not only do you not need the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, but you impute the righteousness of yourself to God. And you say to God, look what I've done. Look at my goodness. And you go to heaven based upon your goodness. You attain reward on your goodness. You get accolades based on your goodness. It's not what God did in you, according to what Pelagius would say. Pelagius viewed the church's teaching on predestination and election as being blasphemous. When did this happen? Anybody remember when I told you it was happening? Between 354 and 370 A.D. And they already had a teaching from the church on predestination and election. They had a teaching from the church on a lot of different doctrines. And we're going to kind of talk on some of those. Stating that, he, he says this, that man is absolutely free and no way con, uh, corrupted, has no corrupted will, and naturally conclude that the idea of universal atonement and the position that God will have every man with him in heaven for eternity. You see, that here's the thing. If you are naturally a good man or a bad man and your sin is not imputed to you, if God does not impute sin and he cannot hold you accountable, what is your final state? Heaven for eternity. You have nothing to worry about. You don't need Christ. You can be good in yourself. At any moment, 
you can come to Christ and be good in and of yourself. Pelagius saw that God's grace was indeed prevenient. Now, we've talked about prevenient grace a little bit. We'll talk about that later on. Okay, next week we're really going to get into a discussion about the different aspects of God's grace, if you will. But for this week, I want to give you something that Pelagius taught. Pelagius taught that God's grace was indeed prevenient. However, he did not mean prevenient to mean from before the foundation of the world. What he meant, as I've told you guys before, is prevenient grace was that grace which comes just before you act. So in other words, when you guys decided to come here today, God in his great grace, according to Pelagius, this is not what we believe at all, according to Pelagius, God in his great grace moved you to want to come this way and then step back and let you make your choice and your decision. He didn't bring you here for any purpose. It was just happenstance. And whatever you chose to do, he just said, you go right ahead and make your own choice. I don't care. I'll just move the next piece. And all he was was basically a chess player. All he does is basically play chess really well. And he guesses really well at what you're going to do. And that's basically what uh, Pelagius taught. He taught that foreknowledge was just God looking down through time to see what you were going to do when it comes to election or predestination, uh, regeneration. It's only based on the fact that he looked down through time to see exactly what you were going to do and because you were going to do this, he chose you. What does that say about God? We've talked about this before. It says that God's not omniscient. He has to look down through time to find out what you're going to do. It says that God doesn't know everything because he has to look down to see what you guys are going to do today. And he doesn't know it. But it also says that something is outside of his own power. Time itself, which he created, is the one that has chosen all that will happen. You see, this is the infralapsarian position. Remember, we talked about this a long time ago. An infralapsarian position says that God just looks down through time and he doesn't really know what's going on, and he checks and balances what's going to happen, and he did this before the foundation of the world. Now, the supralapsarian position would be that, be that God, before the foundation of the world, sovereignly chose exactly what was going to take place on this earth because there's no other way for it to possibly happen if God does not know everything, then he's definitely not God. Amen? Pelagius saw that God's grace was prevenient, but he didn't mean it the way we're talking about it. Pelagius completely denied the necessity of perfecting and sanctifying grace and preserving grace. For all the acts of men are independent, and Jesus only actually died to pay for those individual bad sinful choices not actually for men who committed the sinful act. And what I want you to think about this. When Pelagius was teaching this, he was saying that God sent Jesus Christ to die for sin, not for men. He didn't care about you. He cared to cover your sin if you freely chose to sin. He didn't care about you. He loved you after you've done your good act. So God is responding to your work. That's blasphemy. That's heresy on six different levels. Listen to this. If the sin that men committed is separate from the man himself and not an actual part of his nature, then he does not need to worry about judgment and wrath 
for he can go to the throne based upon his own work. Did you catch that? If the sin that the man commits is not part of his nature, then the sin itself is condemned and not the man. That's the idea behind this teaching that Pelagius would have. Well, I want to show you, uh, now that we've kind of given a a background of where we're at, I want to give you the the church's answer to Pelagius. Next week we're going to really look at Augustine's answer. Okay? Um, Augustine wrote volumes of books. Too many to count. He wrote volumes of books. Um, I've got all of his works on Kindle. I love that Kindle. I've got all of his works on Kindle, and there is no better summation than B.B. Warfield. B.B. Warfield wrote a book that that summarized the entire issue of the Pelagian-Augustinian argument, and it is a fabulous discussion. That's what I've been using for this entire discussion. I've I've read through a lot of his works and cross-referenced to make sure that Warfield was right, which remember what I told you about old dead guys? What have I told you? They've been proven. Old dead guys are the ones that are tried and true or proven to be heretics. Trust the old dead guys. We'll talk about Charles Finney in a private time later on. (laughs) Actually, we'll talk about that when we get to the Arminians. Augustine, uh, he was a prolific writer. Um, and, And through one of his writings, Pelagius heard that Augustine had written a prayer, and it goes like this. Give what thou commandest, and command what thou wilt. Well, this was the catalyst for Pelagius' anger. Um, his desire to correct this false think- thinking. Remember, he went to Rome, and everybody was saying, well, I just can't help it. I just can't help it. And, and their excuse was, I was born this way. And since I was born this way, that God's responsible. And he's saying, no, you can be good all by yourself. Well, when he heard this, what happened? Boy, he went in a fit of rage. It actually says that he almost got into a fight with the man that told it to him, the other bishop that told him. Well, this is the catalyst for what had happened. He did not like direct confrontation, so he taught privately in Rome and everywhere else that he was at about his philosophies. Warfield said this, that the most important fruit of his residence in Rome was the conversion of his advocate, anybody know his name? Celestius, who brought the courage of youth and argumentative training of a lawyer to the propagation of new teachings. It was through him that it first broke out into public controversy. Ever notice how there are people in the world that you attach yourself to and they become so zealous for something that they would argue with a, a, a picket fence? I mean, they'd argue with anybody about anything. Well, this Celestius was that man. I mean, when he found out that, that he was, had free will and he could do whatever he wanted to do and he was ready to fight for this truth, nobody could shut him up. And he went arguing with everybody. He went fighting with everybody over this. Well, in 411 A.D., um, a, a man by the name of Arlick uh, made a second raid on Rome uh, that caused Pelagius and Celestius to flee to Africa. Now, in case you don't know, who's in Africa? Augustine of Hippo, right? So he's in Africa. Well, he, by God's providence, 
wasn't there. So Pelagius comes through with his friend Celestius, and they're teaching their heresies everywhere they go. It's kind of it's kind of one of the norms. You, you can't get Joel Osteen to, to walk into uh, into uh, any area without him teaching his heresy, right? They're just going to throw out stuff and make everybody feel good and say pass the plate. Well, uh, Celestius and and, and uh, Pelagius they they run into run in there and and they start teaching their heresies and they run right back out. They go to Palestine. Now Palestine is where is where uh, Pelagius lived for a lot of his life. Wind's blowing to the earth. <laughs> I know. But Celestius was such a contender, was such an argumentative person that Pelagius dropped him off in Carthage and says, stay here and teach. And he wanted to get rid of him. He wanted him out of his hair because he was just causing a lot of problems. So in Carthage, Celestius sought out to be ordained. You're going to love this. Listen to this account. When Paulinus, he was a deacon in a local church, he heard about the false teaching of Celestius, he studied on his false teaching. He stood before the church council that was just about to uh, ordain Celestius, and he labeled him a heretic and brought charges against him and said, we need to have a council to talk because this man's teaching false teaching, false philosophy. In response to the charge of heresy, bishop by the name of Aurelius, uh, he presided over a synod, which is a small council of of bishops and, and whatnot that would come together, kind of like we'd have a church council to come together to figure out who's uh, in error or if there is an error. And so what they did was they had this synod that came along, and Paulinus, he brought up seven charges against the Pelagian teachings and against Celestius himself. Well, Paulinus' charge, uh, charge uh, consisted of seven, seven items which asserted that uh, Celestius taught the following heresies. He's taught that Adam was mortal, that he would have died anyway, that whether he had sinned or not, that Adam's sin only injured himself, all the things that we've just talked about. He's laying all this stuff out. Well, Celestius refused to repent of the heresies. The entire church laid out the scriptures for him and showed him when he was in error, and he completely refused to repent. Now, what happens when somebody refuses to repent? They get excommunicated, and that's exactly what happened. You know what he did? What any good Christian would do. He ran over to Ephesus to get his ordination. And know what a good Christian would do? That's what we do today. I don't like this church, and they're saying something wrong, so let's run over to this church, right? So Celestius, he runs right over to Ephesus, got his ordination without any regard to what was going on. Now, I'm going to contend that they didn't know. Okay, I'm going to contend that they didn't know about what was going on. So he refuses to, to repent. Well, Warfield writes this. Meanwhile, Pelagius was living quietly in Palestine, where in the summer of 415, listen to this, he's teaching quietly, but in 415, a Spanish, a Spanish presbyter named Paulus, Orissus, uh, came with a letter from Augustine to Jerome. Now, here's what you kind of got to know about Augustine. Augustine never mentioned Pelagius by name for almost two years. He just was dealing with the bad teaching. He was trying to deal with the man based on bad teaching 
and he was trying to quietly go to him and warn people about the bad teaching without actually attacking uh, Pelagius. But Pelagius wouldn't have any part of it. He kept teaching heresies, and eventually, after two years, Augustine says this man is an actual heretic. He is teaching doctrine that will send men to hell. Guys, I'm going to tell you something. If you believe that you can save yourself and you don't need Christ exclusively, you will not enter heaven. And this is where Augustine and all Christians have always stood, that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So I'm going to answer your question. Do you need grace? Without grace, there is no salvation. Well, he wrote, uh, Warfield uh, continued on. He says that Augustine had, had written a letter to Jerome, and he was invited near the end of July in that year to a, Di- a Dionysian synod presided over by John of Jerusalem. And you guys know that name. No, you don't. <laughs> it wasn't John the Baptist. It wasn't John the Apostle. We don't know who it was. There he asked about Pelagius and Celestius and proceeded to give an account of the condemnation of the latter synod at Carthage and Augustine's literary reputation of the former. In other words, Augustine was there, and he gave a good uh, refutation of Pelagius. Well, after they, uh, Pelagius was sent for and the proceedings became uh, to examination within his teaching, Warfield explained that men, the men could not understand the language. They're Greek, and they couldn't understand Latin. So as as uh, Pelagius comes in to, te- uh, to talk to them about what was going on, you know what he did? Spoke in Latin. But he knew Greek. All he did was speak in Latin, and it fell apart. A short time later, two bishops who were in Palestine lodged a formal complaint against Pelagius and Celestius, and the bishops of Caesarea held a synod there in December of 415. Fourteen bishops were present. None of them could understand what was written in Latin. And the two bishops that had made the accusations of heresies against Pelagius and Celestius, they were sick, and because of their illness, they could not attend the synod, the hearing. So what happened? Fell apart. You know what? I'll tell you exactly what the Warfield says here. Pelagius was uh, well versed in Latin, so he stood, listen to this, and he read his own accusation against him. He twisted it in such a way, because they trusted him, he twisted it in such a way that all the accusations that were supposed to be against him, he made them look like they were praising him. And so the entire Senate, you know what they did? They said, he's not a heretic. He's a friend of ours. He's a great Christian. He's a wonderful man. You know, kind of like the wolves do today. The false teachers do today. Well, uh, Warfield writes that he escaped condemnation only by a course of most ingenuous, ingenious disingenuousness (laughs) and only at the cost, now listen to this, of disowning Celestius. So Pelagius, what he did in this argument says, Everything you've been hearing, Celestius is teaching it. The man that he had taught, he's throwing him under the bus. The man he teaches, he's throwing him under the bus. Pelagius was uh, then sent letters to every bishop around and told of the acquittal of the charges against himself 
and even said that Celestius had been exonerated as well. And he was excited and told everybody as fast as he could, and they gained temporary favor with the bishops. As soon as they arrived in North Africa, as soon as the news arrived in North Africa, and before the authentic records of, of, of the synod could be brought, Pelagius and Celestius were, were uh, reexamined, and they reaffirmed the other two synods that had condemned them. And you're saying to yourself, why does this matter? Is anybody in this room saying, why does this matter? I really hope not, because you're a Christian because of this. You believe in Christ because of this. Without this stuff happening, you don't have any clue of the true doctrines of Christ. Could you imagine living in a society today where nothing but false doctrine and teaching as sending men's soul to hell is reigning today? I praise God we have this. Well, in 416, 60 bishops met together in Melville in Africa and condemned all the teachings of Pelagius. 60. Not just a few men. 60. Not just men off the streets, learned scholars who came together and got in the Word of God. Wouldn't you love to have people getting together and get in the Word of God to teach and not just men's opinion? Isn't that great? Okay, so let's talk about the Roman bishop. Now, this is before the popes, just before the popes. In North Africa, Synod sent letters to Innocent I in Rome and urged him to examine and condemn Pelagius and Celestius. Now, here's what you've got to understand. They were just before the popes, though in Rome is the biggest church and they have the biggest authority, so they're looking to Rome and they're starting to fill their oats, and they're starting to get this Roman Catholic mentality about them. Okay? Well, in January 17, 4, uh, 417 A.D., Innocent sent letters to condemn the Pelagian heretics. Well, Bishop died. Bishop Innocent died six weeks later. Now you're going to love this. His predecessor, Zosimus, became Bishop of Rome, and he met with Celestius and Pelagius within a few weeks. And he favored the men and reinstated them and protected them. He died because he wasn't innocent. <laughs> We're all not. Don't have a clue. I, I don't have a clue. Nothing I've seen says what. Zosimus then sent a letter to the African bishops. Now, he's trying to establish his authority, okay? And he severely rebuked them, demanding that they repent of their treatment of these two wonderful men. Around 417 to 418, late 417, early 418, the African bishops met together again, and they unanimously, 100% of the 60 men, come together, and they wrote a letter to the bishop of Rome, and they told him to get himself in line. Okay? They told him, we are not backing down. We've condemned this heretic, and we will not back down. They told him to get himself in line. So much for the infallibility of the popes. You're going to like what happens next. B.B. Warfield says this. The letter was written on the 21st of March, 418. It was received in Africa 
on the 29th of March, March, right? The letters that came to Africa telling them to back down, right? On the very next day, now I'm talking Providence here, the very next day, an imperial decree was issued from Ravenna ordering Pelagius and Celestius to be banished from Rome with all who held their opinions, while in the next day, May the 1st, a plenary council of 200 bishops met at Carthage and the nine canons condemned the essential features of all Pelagianism. Guess that? The very next day, the emperor of Rome had condemned and banished Pelagius and Celestius, and Zosimus, being the benevolent leader he is, fell in line with everybody else and tried to make it look like he was leading. You know what he did? He writes letters to everybody saying, I told you guys you've got to condemn these heretics, and I agree with the, po- or the, the, the emperor. I agree with him. We've got to condemn these heretics. And you know where they were at? They were in his house. <laughs> they were with him under his protection, and he had to condemn them. Something like six months earlier, he had been attacking everybody else for condemning them. And what he said was, anybody that does not believe what they, uh, what, that, that believes what they believe is a heretic, and you are lost and undone, and we want nothing to do with you. You are not a Christian, and you are not a teacher. We want nothing to do with you. And actually, Zosimus came together with a, a, um, a test, if you will, of, of, of accountability to be a bishop, a test to be a bishop. If you believe anything that Pelagius has taught, you're not eligible. Some kind of leadership, right? Well, that's exactly what, uh, what Zosimus was, was uh, famous for. I moved my spot. Well, all this took place because one man. Think about it. You could actually be sitting in a Roman Catholic church right now without any Protestant teaching that you are have your own free will to do whatever you want to do, that God can't do anything, that he does all he can, and then you know, this leaves you to your own natural abilities that you can save yourself, that you don't need Christ. Substitutionary atonement's a lie. You don't need any of this stuff. You know why? One man. One man stood up against a pretty good tide of teaching and said, I won't have it. Thus saith the Lord. Augustine stood up and refused to sit down. He stood up and he refused to be silent. He stood up and he said, it is God's grace alone that saves. It is God's grace alone that sanctifies. It is God's grace alone that, that brings us to salvation, and it's God's grace that gives us eternal life. Well, Augustine, he answered the call. He stood up. He said it is God's grace that was absolutely necessary for salvation for every man and every woman who will believe. Augustine answered this. He taught that Adam was created holy. Now, here's one thing I want you to think about. When somebody talks to you and says to you, are you saying that I'm a slave to sin? That's not fair. I can say, do you realize that Adam was created holy and he had the free will? And the scripture tells us that he fell in sin, that he was condemned because of his sin? 
not because of God's anger and God's vengeance and God's just a mean God, but because of God's kindness. He didn't destroy him immediately. Augustine thought that Adam was created holy with a will that was biased toward God. Right? That he walked with him in the garden. That he fellowshiped with Adam. That he was with Adam and they cared for one another and they loved one another. That Adam was given the control over all of creation. That he was given the responsibility to act in good stead for God. And Adam chose to fall in his depravity and his sin. Adam sinned by his wicked desire, and he was responsible for his own sin. But Adam's sin was passed down to all men, because Adam was the federal head of all men. Augustine taught that the Bible says that sin and death came from Adam, but we also will and want to sin. Romans 5, 12-14 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not accounted where there was no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who sinned, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. This scripture tells us that every single one of us sinned in our own way. But that sin came from Adam. Well, next week, I want to talk to you about Augustine's view of God's grace and what he taught about predestined grace, prevenient grace, perfecting grace, and preserving grace. And I want to show you guys from the scriptures and from what Augustine taught us what we saw in the the gospel account of Luke chapter 5. The paralyzed man was saved by God's grace, not his own work. He was saved by God's kindness and his grace toward the man who did not deserve it. But you, 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 if you are saved, it is only by the grace of an almighty God. If you are not, you need to repent. You need to come to repentance today. Because God is so great, he's worthy of repentance. Because God is so wonderful and so good in his kindness, he leads men to repentance. He draws men to repentance. As we've been talking about this, has it not stirred your heart that God in his great grace one day chose to save you? And he's chosen to save others. Maybe he decides today is the day of your salvation. Ask yourself the question. Am I good enough to go to heaven on my own, or do I need the grace of God? Is it necessary? See, next week I want to kind of dive into an argument that God's grace is necessary, but it's not sufficient. And I'm going to stand against that heresy, too. God's grace is all there is, or you don't have salvation. It's not just necessary, but it is also sufficient. Now think about this. Is God's grace what saved you, or did you work hard enough to get yourself there? See, that heresy that we've talked about here, I think we finally shut the door on that. It was deemed a heresy thousand years ago plus, and it's still a heresy today. 
saying, and I know you guys have, if I were to take just pure fresh water and put just a little bit of sewage in it, is it still pure water? How much truth is tainted with a lie and it still be truth? How much? You can't paint truth. Once you do, it becomes all lie, right? If I, I tell my kids all the time, if I take half the truth and half a lie and I put it together, do I end up with half truth or a whole lie? Ask yourself a question. The Bible declares that God saves you by his grace and his grace alone. Is that true or not? If it's true, then how is it that you're saved? Are you saved? Have you been born again? Think about those things. If you need to talk about it, let's talk about it. You know, I'm just thinking about the people in the park here tonight. There have been people standing here listening to this message. I've been seeing people walk through and they're listening to the message. Most of them won't come to a church. And let's prove it to you. What time is it right now? Somebody needs to hear the gospel. Most people won't come to church. We need to go to most people. God in his great grace has given them, us. I love you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I come before you. I want to magnify your name, lift you up and exalt your righteous name. Lord, we thank you so much for your great kindness towards us. Heavenly Father, I just uh, I ask that if there anybody here that can hear us, anybody in this room, in this building, that doesn't know you as Savior and Lord, that they come to you, they lead to you as Savior. They recognize their sin and their need of salvation. In your righteous name, I pray, Lord, amen. Well, the past um, several weeks we've been actually looking at the scriptural admonition in Luke that shows us the acting out of the issues of sovereignty. That's what we've been really looking at. My, my heart behind this is not to defend the doctrines of grace, but to see where the historical aspects of the, of the doctrines come from. If it's a new idea or if it came just from John Calvin or, or if it's just a new idea, um, if it's something that we just thought of yesterday, uh, if we see it in Scripture. But remember the most important question I asked you guys, is grace even necessary? See, that was the issue behind all the arguments. The people, even back in the 300s, and I mean 300s, not 1300s, were saying grace wasn't even necessary. People were running around saying, look, I can't come to God. I don't need his grace, and I don't want it. They were basically saying I was born this way, and I don't need it. And then you had Pelagius came along and says, says you don't need God's grace in order to be saved uh, because God has already bestowed you with all the, all the truth that you need and all the, the salvation you need because you have a divine spark in you, is basically what he would say. Um, and, and you hear that today, that there remains a divine spark in man, that he's not totally depraved. Uh, but Pelagius would take it even farther and say, that he's not sinful, he's not wicked, he's actually a man that's actually a good person, and that, you know, the, the fall of, of Adam had no effect. <clears throat> well, um, R.C. Sproul, because when we consider the relationship between sovereign God to a fallen world, we're faced with basically four options. Number one, God could decide to provide no opportunity for anyone to be saved. And he would be fair. He'd be just, Right? God could provide opportunity for all to be saved. If he did that, he would present justice. Amen? God could intervene directly and ensure the salvation of all people. 
if he did that, that would be something he very well could have done. But he would have shown no heart for justice. He was denied the necessity of repentance and justice. And then number four, God could intervene directly and ensure the salvation of some people, thereby being just, as the scripture says, being just and justified of men. You see, God is going to uphold sovereign justice. And it's how does God do this? Does he do it in a way that, that he condemns all men to hell? Well, that's just, and it is fair, and it is right. But it, what it does not show is God's long-suffering and patience and grace and kindness, which is part of the things that God desired to show. Um, he could have saved all people, everyone that ever sinned. The problem is, is that negates his justice. It negates his holiness, because what it says is, you can sin as much as you want to, Rob Bell's view, the, the way his view is, you can sin as much as you want to, and you're going to spend eternity in heaven anyway, because love wins. While that might seem loving, it is not loving to God. Think about that. And then you have to look at the issue. God could intervene directly and ensure the salvation of some people. And like we said just a minute ago, we have seen the teaching that came from the philosophy of Plagius. We talked about that. Uh, we talked to some about uh, Augustine. Uh, not, not a great deal, but a little bit about Augustine. And July 20th, 2014, today we're going to talk about this. is part one of Augustine's answer to Pelagius. Um, guys, I don't know how many parts this is going to be. It might be two, it might be three, it might be four. Um, because I want to break down for you Augustine's discussion of grace. What is grace? We've seen the philosophy of Pelagius and the resulting condemnation that came from five different councils. I showed you all the different councils that came along. These are ecumenical councils, and what that means is there was a large uh, ecumenical, in other words, uh, all-inclusive group of the church, of the church in, in the 300s to 400s. They would come together in a council uh, somewhere between, um, I think one of the smallest ones was 30, one of the largest was over 200 bishops get together, and they go through the Word of God to determine What's being taught here? Is it right or is it wrong? Now, um, as these men are getting together, they, they, they uh, also had two more synods, which is a small small council of churches, like the local council, like our our organization, our Baptist Holston Association, would get together and determine something, right? Uh, a bunch of pastors, a bunch of, a bunch of elders would get together, and they're trying to figure out what is doctrinally correct because they've not dealt with these issues in this in this position before. And Pelagius was, as I told you, he was, he was coming along, he's telling everybody, you don't need grace. Grace is, is human ability. It's human will. It's, it's, it's just your own human nature. And you can, you know, what he would say is based upon the first act of your will, you can decide to be holy. You can decide to be righteous. And God will affirm that. Based on your coming to God and on the first act of your will, God will affirm that. Well, the church recognized the danger of having one man enter into false teaching about the person and work of God in Christ and the way of salvation. The church recognized the danger of it. See, it's not just that the, the church said, oh, well, he's just uh, one guy having his opinion. If the church actually looked at the Word of God and stood for the Word of God, we would have, even today, less heretics running around, especially like the Rob Bells of the world, that are, that are getting placed, the Rick Warrens of the world, that are getting placed in churches and saying, oh, they're Southern Baptists, or they're this group or that group, and they're teaching heresies. We've got a church now that has uh, a Southern Baptist church that has affirmed the homosexual agenda and is ordaining uh, uh, homosexual pastors and, uh, all, you know, marrying them in and whatnot, and, and you got to ask yourself a question. At what point in time does the church look back at its history and say, 
We need to come together and stand. You see, that's what these people were doing. On this issue, is grace necessary? The question that B.B. Warfield asked was this. Is Christianity necessary? You see, if grace is not necessary, then Christ's death is not necessary. Christianity itself is not necessary. Any way and every way can come to God. Indeed, we see the question of grace was and still remains to be the very important question. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared yesterday, beforehand, that we should walk in them. See, what he's saying is, what what Paul was saying, it is the grace of God that has saved you through the faith that God has provided, not your own doing, not your own work. It's the grace of God that God provided. You don't have a right to boast. It came through Christ. It says we are his workmanship, not our workmanship, not your effort, not your ability. When you ask professing Christians today if they believe this passage, if they believe this, every one of them, almost every one of them, I'll say, would say, yes, I totally believe that. But when you look at what they practice and they teach, they deny passages like this outright. You see, this passage is clear that salvation is by grace, which was prepared by God in Christ through faith beforehand. That term beforehand is the foreordained, foreaction before the foundation of the world beforehand. It's not talking about yesterday. The Pelagian view is that these things, and we're going to talk about this next week, of the prevenience of God would say that this happened just before you made your decision. It just happened before you made your decision, just before you acted out your good faith. And that's not the view. That's not what is being taught. That's not ever been taught until you get a heretic come in and step in the church. I want you to go with me, if you will. So Luke chapter 5. When we're asking those questions to the Christians, we see people that will defend their own free, autonomous choice to make their decision for their Lord apart from, from any idea of election or predestination. They'll make their decision without anything of God, without any, as, as Pelagius calls it, special aid. They're going to hold fast to the ability to choose God by the merits that they've earned. Even though they say, no, grace, 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 in order to be saved, they must work, work, work. They're going to hold on to this, an unaided will. Now, Blaze is calling it, like I just told you, God's special aid. You just don't need that. And today, in the churches, everyone that I know of preaches, God has done 99% of the work. He's just waiting for you to do the rest. If you'll just get up and come down that aisle, if you'll just come down here, if you take that first step, God will do the rest. If you will just take that first step of faith, God will take you the rest of the way to heaven. He's just waiting for you. He can't intervene into your will. He can't do anything until you tell him it's okay. He can't do anything until you give him permission. And when you give him permission, he'll take you to heaven. Here's another one for you. God voted for you, and Satan voted against you, and you break the tie. Luke chapter 5, verse 12 through 26. You guys know these passages, but I want to break this out to you. 
While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. I want you to underline, if you write your Bibles, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. What was this man's will? What was his desire from God? Was, uh, just ask yourself the question. Was this man's will and desire to be saved? Or was it to be healed? His will, knowing the Christ, was here. Knowing the Messiah, the man that proclaimed to be the Messiah, who from the, from, we even read it in Psalm 50, that the Messiah would be the Savior from God. The one that would save his people. This man didn't cry out for salvation. He cried out for what the rest of the crowd cried out for. What they wanted. You see, this man truly did exercise his will. His will was not for salvation, and it never could be. Because his will was always for himself and his pride. Him being a dead man cried out for the only thing that dead men can cry out for. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. Now, there are many theologians that say, see, this is evidence that Christ saved him. Be thou clean. He cleans him, so he cleans him body and soul. That is not what that says. The evidence is right afterwards. Jesus stretched out his hand and says, I will be thou clean, and be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, and Moses, as Moses commanded, for a proof of them, proof of the cleansing. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him to be healed of their infirmities. Instead of going to the Pharisees, instead of going to the, the temple priests and, and telling them, hey, I've been cleansed and I want to do what's right before God, instead of obeying the command, go and show yourself to the temple priest, instead of going and telling no one, instead of doing any of these things, he ran and disobeyed God immediately. He did what was in his will. Hey, look what God's done for me. I've got a new car, a new house. I've got everything I need. My life is happy. I'm healthy. I'm wealthy. Look, I'm strong. I'm virulent. Look, you want to know how to get this, this program? Get on with God. Right over here's Jesus, and he can make your life better. All you got to do is throw your seat. All you got to do is believe. All you got to do is have a little bit of faith. If you'll run towards God, he'll take, give you what you need. He gave him temporarily what he needed, but he did not give him salvation. The man did not cry out for salvation. There was no desire for salvation. Now, now look at the contrast. Verse 17. On those days he was teaching. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting, sitting there, verse 17, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was on him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the piles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? Underline that. Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? Bless you. Think about what the, what the implication of that, that, that statement is. Either he's God or he's a lying blasphemer. Their, their charge is true. Only God can forgive sin. No man has ever been able to forgive sin, and he did not say, man, you're healed. The man did not run to him or limp to him or whatever. There is no indication that the man cried out, Lord, make me clean. Every indication is that Christ did it in his own sovereign will. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, what does that prove? God alone knows the heart and intention of man. Who is he talking to? 
He answered them, Why do you question in your hearts, which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Arise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man, there's another statement for you, the Son of Man, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now remember that within the, uh, only a few exceptions, very few limited exceptions in the Old Testament, this has never been seen before. And do you know what the response of the people is? Listen. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up his bed, picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. Verse 26. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and were filled with awe and said, underline this, we have seen extraordinary things today. We've seen the Messiah, the Savior, the God of the universe has come down and stepped into our lives and offered salvation, and we cry out in repentance. Oh, God, save us as well. No, that's not what it said, is it? Oh, God, give us life. That's not what he said. Oh, we've seen some amazing things today, haven't we? It's ambivalence. Listen to this. Everyone in this story shows their will. The leper's will or heart's desire was to be clean from his leprosy, not to repent for, uh, of his sins before the holy God. The Pharisees' will was to find some fault with Jesus and to keep their power. The, the faithful friends showed their will and desire to bring men to Christ because they were faithful to Christ. Now watch this. Nothing has told us about the paralyzed man other than the fact that he was laying on a cot or some type of a bed. He was incapable of exercising any will or desire of his own. But when Christ, in unmerited grace, forgave him of his sin, he proved it by, by curing his ailment. The man demonstrated a new heart and a new will in acting out his faith. A desire for obedience and a drive to per persevere in that faith. We see the evidence that he began the race that God had set before him. He gave him new limbs, new body, new spirit, new heart. He gave him a whole new person and said, now get up and walk, get up and run. The mass of the people were amazed. It says they were even, they were amazed or even astonished. But in the end, I just told you, they were ambivalent about Jesus the Messiah. Not one of those people came to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Do you see any indication of one Pharisee falling down on his face saying, my works is not good enough? Do you see any indication of the crowd crying out, Jesus, Save us, we are sinners as well. We need to be forgiven. An entire race of people who have lived their entire lives, all crying out to the, to the, the God of the universe, what must we do? And they would give, he gave them the, the blood of bulls and goats. And it never sacrificed, that sacrifice never had its full, full proof, never had its full provision, and never fully atoned for their sin. And they were always condemned and always guilty because they always, every day, had to sacrifice something for some sin. There was always sacrifice before them. They always knew they were in condemnation and sin. And this man was given something nobody had ever seen. Pure forgiveness by grace. Not any work. Just grace. Just grace. Just grace poured out upon him. The mass of the people could care less about that. They came to get what they wanted from Jesus. The mass of the people were ambivalent. Not one of them came to Christ for forgiveness, but they did come for what they wanted. The Pharisees wanted to be con condemning of Christ. The leper wanted to be cleansed. All the people wanted something from Jesus. And it says that there were so many people that he would have to depart and look for desolate places to pray. You know why? There were so many. The, the indication of this was that the crowds around that place were so great that there was no room to step. 
Everybody wanted something from Jesus, but nobody wanted salvation. Nobody wanted to be right with God. Nobody wanted to have a new heart. Nobody wanted a new covenant. None of them. But God in his grace called out a select few people that he saved. And you know what he did with those people? He made them warriors for Christ to bring other people to God. You see that here with those faithful friends. Pelagius thought that men did not need some special aid to believe and to be saved. All he had to do was live a holy life. Well, if that's the case, assuming that this paralytic was born paralyzed and was capable of his own holiness, then why did Jesus especially call him and choose him for salvation and him only in this invitation? The entire crowd is around him. They all needed to be saved, did they or did they not? Everybody in that crowd needed salvation, but none of them ran to God. It was God who ran to at least one man. We know there was more because we see that men of faith ran to Christ with this paralyzed man. I'm going to tell you in a, uh, one of the sermons later on why your greatest friends, why the world's greatest friends are those who are faithful friends. Remember that Blake just thought that Adam made his own destiny upon the first act of his will. Though he was born morally neutral and not actually holy, Adam could have chosen to be holy and he could have chosen equally to sin. At any point in time, he could take away that choice and just be holy again. Pelagius said that since every man is a new Adam, free from the taint of sin and corruption, we also can make our own destiny upon the first act of our own will. That is taught today in almost every church. Most churches teach that today. You heard me say a little while ago, all you've got to do is take that first step. All you've got to do is make that first decision. If you walk down the aisle, it is so bad that in revivals, in conferences, in teachings, you hear pastors tell their, their congregation, you'll hear pastors tell their, their deacons or even the music people, and one church they told us, when we're out here and the hymn of invitation comes and we get to the first or second stanza of just as I am or, you know, softly and tenderly or whatever else is going on, when that happens and, and, and every head's bowed and every eye's closed, you guys need to get up and walk your way up there because it makes it easier for them to choose Christ. These people are going to be struggling. It makes them easier for them to choose Christ. It makes it easier. And see, that's what Pelagius thought. Grace aids us, but it's not necessary. It might make it easier, but it's not necessary because that person can come of their own free will. I want you to remember this. When I email this to you, I want you to pay special attention to this section. Augustine, Augustine taught that Adam was created holy with a will and bias towards God. His heart was toward God. They were friends and walked together. They learned together. They truly loved each other. He was inclined to love God, and it was of his own free will. Adam sinned by his wicked desire and was rebellious and responsible for his own sin. But Adam's sin was passed down to all men because Adam is the federal head of all men. Augustine taught that the Bible says that sin and death came from Adam, but it was also what we want and our will. We just saw that in Luke. It was not the heart and desire of any one of those men to be right with God. They liked their life just like it was. The leper wanted to be cleansed of his physical infirmity, but not his spiritual infirmity. Do you see that? There is not one of us left to ourselves that want to change who we are. And i got news for you. There's not one person apart from Christ that can change who they are. The Bible says, can a leopard change its spots? Can an Ethiopian change its color? The answer is no. It can't happen. 
Romans 5, 12 and 14, Therefore, since just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. And that, by the way, just so you understand that this is not saying that because the Ten Commandments weren't given, there was no law. This, what he's saying is, is that sin was already in the world and the law was in the world. From the foundation, Adam knew it to be wrong to sin against God, and he knew what sin was. Cain knew what it was to sin against God, and he knew what sin was. He knew that murder was wrong. He knew that hate was wrong. He knew that coveting was wrong. And yet he did it of his own wicked heart anyway. Yes, he did it of his own free will, but he had no heart towards God. He had no desire, no ability towards God. And apart from Christ, apart from grace, there is no ability towards God. He goes on to say, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sin was not like the transgression of Adam. So it wasn't just that this one sin was the only sin that was in the world, but everything that God had commanded from the foundation of the world. And we still have it in our hearts today. It is all sin. I want to discuss Augustine's theology of grace with you for a few minutes. Warfield writes this, The necessity of grace to man. Augustine argued from the condition of the race as partakers in, of Adam's sin. God created man upright and endowed him with human faculties, including free will, and gave him freely that grace by which he was able to retain his uprightness. But thus was put on probation. You've heard me talk to you guys about this issue of in the garden, the fact that, that God made Adam holy, but he's not as holy as God is holy. He made Adam holy, but he was on probation. If he had maintained that holiness and persevered through and believed in Christ and in God, there would have been no sin stain in his life, no fall and no corruption. But in his heart, he failed before he ever physically failed. In his heart, he sinned before he ever physically sinned. His desire was toward the sin. Now, the actual acting out of the sin was the eating of the, the, uh, you know, what, the, the honey crisp apple, I guess it was, whatever it was. There's a honey crisp apple. I'll guarantee you. Those things are wicked. <laughs> it probably was. More than likely. But it could have been anything. You know, Adam used his free choice for sinning and involved the whole race in his fall. We just read that in Romans. It was on account of this sin that he died physically and spiritually, and this double death passes over from him to us. That all his descendants, by ordinary generation, are partakers of Adam's guilt and condemnation. Augustine is sure from the teaching of Scripture. Now, remember what we talked about, about Pelagius. His entire certainty came from his own philosophy, his own desire to stand for God by really denying the word of God. It was, I believe, my opinion, my opinion, but I say it can't be this way. It has to be this way. My opinion is this, and my opinion trumps the Scripture. Though the Bible says that men are dead and trespass and sin, you're not really that way. Though the Bible says that you're unholy, it's not really true. Though the Bible says Adam was a sinner, it's not true. Though the Bible says that you cannot come to God because you will not come to God, that you are an enemy of God in your mind through your wicked works, that you have no desire toward God, that you are the unrighteous, that's not true. You can come to God and you don't need any special thing. That's played just a position. And that's the position that the world holds today. Um, I heard a pastor say this. Pelagianism 
is the religion of the natural man. They're good enough to get to God on their own. They don't need any divine special aid. They don't need Christ. They don't need God. They can get to utopia on their own. Or they can make it. They don't need anything special. That is the Pelagian argument. He goes on to say this. Augustine was fond of representing this grace in essence, the writing of God's law or God's will on our hearts so that it appears hereafter as our own desire and wish. I want to back up just for a moment. Augustine is sure from the teaching of Scripture of the fact of original sin from which no one generated Adam is free and from which no one is free, is free to save as the regenerated in Christ. Augustine is convinced that everybody in Adam is condemned, is dead in sin, and they are not free. But everybody in Christ is, regener- is regenerated and free. See, Christ came to set sinners free. That's what he came to do. Warfield continues this. Augustine is fond of representing this grace as, in essence, the writing of God's law on our hearts, so that it appears hereafter as our own desire and wish. God writes his law on our hearts, and before we're even saved, before we come to Christ, we know that lying is wrong. We know that sin is sin. We know that hate is wrong, that murder is wrong, that rape is wrong. We know that these things are sin. We just don't attribute them to a desire and a need for repentance until Christ comes in and gives us a new heart under the new covenant with a new will, a new spirit. When God gives us a new heart, that is a new will. And uh, Augustine says this, said that that new heart and that new desire, that it appears to us hereafter as our own desire and our own wish. This is what I want people to see and understand. It's not that God starts walking with us, but that we start walking with God. You've heard about the fish that goes upstream? We're not flowing with the world. We're going against the flow. And God's going this direction. And we start following that direction. That's why it is that we used to love the sin of the world. And when God gives us a new heart, we now hate the sin of the world. We're in friction against the world. Because God gives us a new desire that our desire, our heart, our will, our want is no longer dead to the, in, in the world, but alive and in Christ. We want to do things of God. And by the way, that's why when you pray, if you're praying in the will of God, you're saying, oh, God, save this sinner. It is God's will to save sinners. And maybe he decides to save that one. And you're praying along with his will. Lord, save this sinner. And he says, yes, I agree. Let's save this sinner. Lord, bring this person to Christ. Yes, I agree. And you're walking in God's will. But the unconverted person does not do that. Lord, save this sinner. Why not save you? Get the log out of your own eye. You see the difference? When you're in Christ, you walk in the will of God. You Maybe not perfectly, and yes, you do sin. But when you're walking in the will of God, it is God himself that is walking in a direction that he's already planned out, and we are cooperating with that. But before that happens, we as the enemies of God must be brought into cooperation. And that's what Augustine is trying to show us, that they always freely chose what they wanted to do. It was just always in opposition to God. Until God gives us a new heart. And then we freely walk, and we think it's us doing it, and it's not, it's God doing it. We're walking in, not in competition with God, but in agreement with God. And we love what he has us to love. Because he's given us a new heart to love righteousness. He goes on to say this. So that it appears hereafter as our own desire, our own will, our own wish, and even more prevalently as the shedding abroad of love in our hearts by the Holy Ghost given to us by Christ Jesus 
Therefore, as a change of disposition by which we come to love and freely choose in cooperation with God's aid, just the things which hitherto we would have been unable to choose because of the bondage of sin. Exactly what I just told you. Exactly what I just told you. We now freely choose to do what God would have us to do. Grace thus does not make void free will. It acts through free will and acts upon it by liberating it from the bondage of sin. I hear people cry out free will all the time. The only people that have free will is those that are in Christ. He came to set us free, to make us truly his. That's the only people that have free will. All those outside of Christ are in bondage to Satan and in one direction headed towards the judgment of God and hell and the lake of fire. Christ came into this world and sent his Holy Spirit to convince the world of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. Grace, thus, does not make void free will. It acts through it. You see, the Arminian, the Pelagian, thinks that they have the handle on free will. They don't even know what it is. See, they, they think that the free will is from the time they were born to the time they die. They can do what they want to, and they choose Christ whatever they want to. That's not it. You've heard me tell you about the predestination issue, the double predestination issue. We're going to talk more about it uh, even more next week. Uh, in Romans, the Bible says that we are one mass lump of sin. We were all predestined for sin. Every one of us, a lump of sin. And God pulls us out and gives us a new heart with new desires, and he changes our will. He changes our want to. And from then on, we walk with God, and we want God, and we want his things. We don't want the things of the world. Grace gives us free will. It doesn't deny us free will. It gives us the freedom to do what is right. You see, free will is not autonomous. It's not free will in a vacuum. I can say, oh, I have free will. I don't have to go to hell, but I don't have to go to heaven. Where am I going to go? Am I going to a void? No. I'm either going to go to hell or I'm going to heaven because there's only two places. One was prepared for the Satan and all his angels, the demons, and one was prepared for God and his people. Now you think about it. If I say I have the free will to do what I want to do, and I don't have to go this way because I don't choose Satan. And I don't have to do this way because God can't control me. What's left for me? A void? You see, God gives us a free will to choose the right, to do the right. And we do that even if it costs us our lives. We do it willingly because God opens our eyes to see truth, to see light. Augustine is showing us that God liberates man. He liberates man. Also, as the very name imports, it is uh, necessarily gratuitous. I'm going to back up real quick. I want to point this out. But just because grace changes the disposition and so enables man hitherto enslaved from sin for the first time to desire and use his free will for good, it lies in the very nature of the case that it is prevenient. Now, what you've got to understand about prevenient grace is I'm going to guarantee that you got on Facebook or got on the Internet and looked up prevenient grace. And you guys are going to get on there and look around, and it's good, but you've got to understand something. Prevenient grace is a doctrine that was hijacked from Pelagius, semi-Pelagianism, all the way through the, the church movement, uh, Roman Catholic Church, all the way through. And prevenient grace is not what you see on the internet today. The idea of prevenient grace is that God, like I told you, moves right before what you're doing, but he leaves you to your own free will to exercise anything you want to do. And he wants so badly for you to make that decision, and he's going to do everything he can, 99%, and get you right up there. And Gary, he says, look, I'm right here. Just just cry. Just, just put your hands up. All you to do, just, just, just grab me. I'm right here. I'm waiting for you. I'm waiting for you. And, and he's going to move everything out of your way. But, but it's okay. You can go this way. You can sin. You can do whatever you want to. I'm not going to stop you. And it's just right before you. 
but it has no view to the foundation of the world. It has no view to God's sovereign election, predestination, the things that God said he's going to do before the foundation of the world, beforehand. That's not what they're talking about. When Augustine talks about prevenient grace, and he's one of the last people that really did talk about it. When, when Augustine talks about prevenient grace, he's talking about predestination. The acting out of predestination. God predestined not only the means, but every avenue of salvation. We'll talk about that next week. If I get on that, we're going to be here for three hours. Now, this prevenient grace is what God did through from the, before the foundation of the world. The, everything that brought about, every, if you will, every scarlet thread that brought every person to salvation. You know, you know, now you want to make me talk about it, so let's talk about it for a second. Thank you for the question. I told you to wait until next week, but you can't wait. You've got to have the answer. Well, I'll tell you next week. Well, that way you actually come to church. Think about this. Think about this. The prevenience of God is this. From Adam to you, what did God do to affect every person in your family line to get you saved? This person, you can't even think about it. But you know where you see it? In Jesus Christ. He was promised in Genesis and all throughout the Old Testament the conditions of the Messiah were made known. And it had to be from a certain bloodline and only that bloodline. And God worked everything to bring every person into that bloodline that he wanted in there so that Jesus Christ is only possibly the Messiah. No other possibility of any other person amongst the mass of the multiplied trillions of people that have ever lived, only Jesus Christ be the Messiah. He is the definition of, of, of predestination. He is the definition Augustine says, he's the definition of prevenience. He's the definition of predestination. If Jesus Christ is not the definition of predestination, then God lied when he said he was sending a redeemer and he didn't know who it was going to be and it could have been Greg or Gary. It could have been anybody. Or Kristen. It wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter. But he said exactly who it would be and laid out all the conditions and set out every event in history to make it happen. Do you think it's any less for your salvation? Now I'm going to do one worse for you. Do you think it's any less for the people that God doesn't save so that in a future generation he might save more? Oh, God's not fair because he didn't save all these people. What about the ones he's going to save through their not being saved? You think about all the ISIS people over here murdering people left and right. Is God unfair that he doesn't save them, but he uses their murderous heart to drive people to Christ? You think about God's providence before the foundation of the world said Adolf Hitler was going to be the man that would bring Israel into its nation. How? By murdering millions. That people over there murdering people left and right over there were going to be used to bring a revival through death and suffering. Amen. You look at Peter. Peter's talking about the diaspora, and what does he say? You were dispersed, so the gospel would go forth. You were dispersed. You are the part of the, disper- of the diaspora, and you were sent out. And these people were murdered and martyred by Nero, by the thousands, maybe millions. And all these people did this out of God's predestined hand. See, thanks a whole lot. That's, that's next week's sermon, so i got 15 extra minutes. <laughs> there is nothing that man can merit, and there is nothing in man to merit. It says also, as the very name imports, Grace is necessarily gratuitous. Since man is enslaved to sin, and until it is given, all the merits that he can have prior to it are bad merits and deserve punishment and no favor in any way. When, then, 
it is asked on the ground of what grace is given, it can only be answered, listen to this, on the ground of God's infinite mercy and undeserved favor. Why do you have grace abound to you? Because of God's infinite mercy and undeserved favor. God graced you because he chose to grace you. God saved you because in his mercy he chose to. Why? Because he wanted to. Why? Because he chose to. Why? We can do that all day long. We can do all that all day long. There is nothing in man to merit it. It first gives merit of good to men. Does that make sense? The merit that comes to, to, of good is come from grace, from God's mercy, not because of man. All men alert, alive deserve death, and all that comes to them in the way of blessing is necessarily of God's free and unmerited favor. Did you enjoy breakfast? Well, there's a little song that goes out, they don't serve breakfast in hell. Guess what? Every breakfast you got before the day you died, sinner, every breakfast was a grace from God. This is uh, equally true of all grace. It's preeminently clear that grace, which gives faith, the root of all other graces, which is given of God, not to merit of goodwill or incipient turning to him, but of his sovereign good pleasure. But equally with faith, it is true of all other divine gifts. I mean, think about this. He goes on to say this. We may indeed speak of the merit of good and succeeding faith. What about mercy and grace and kindness? What about love? What about beauty? What about all the things that God gave you throughout your entire life? Peace and joy, patience. What about all the merits of God's grace that he gave to you before you ever came to Christ? How about life? If we ask, then, why God gives grace, the only answer can be his unspeakable mercy. And if we ask why he gives it to one rather than to the other, what can we answer but that it is of his own will? The sovereign grace results from the very gratuitousness where where none deserve it. It can be given only to the sovereign good pleasure of the giver, the great giver, he says. And this is necessarily inscrutable, but cannot be unjust. But that's, this quote is from Augustine. Think about this. This is from Augustine. About 370, 380, 80. Do you think this matter just popped up yesterday? So you weren't the first one that thought about providence and predestination. I wasn't the first one that thought about God's sovereignty. This is played out throughout all of history. All of Christian history has concerned itself with, except in the first 200 years, has concerned itself with this. Why did God save? How did God save? And is grace necessary? It's all concerned itself with that. If grace is not grace, then why did Christ die? Anything else is blasphemy. Well, I had planned on getting a lot farther than I had to get into this whole discussion. It's all your fault. It's all your fault. Um, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I've got, well, I've got my whole sermon next week. So, <laughs> um, the guys, I want you to be praying. Right? I want you to be praying about, there are many people that are going to come discussing these things with you throughout your life. I'm not trying to give you what my opinion is. I'm trying to tell you what the Word says and what it's been taught throughout all of our history. You know, we can rest in the Word of God. We can rest in the history that God has given to us. Now, we see a lot of error. Augustine made a lot of mistakes. Let me tell you what. He also did a lot of things right. 
and this stuff here, it's amazing to me that we've lost it so quickly and we want to lose it so much, so fast. Let's pray. Well, today we are back to discussing in the, the Gospel of Luke, July 27th, 2014. This is part two. We're going to be talking about Augustine answering Pelagius, and we know that we've gotten this, this point of view where we want to discuss the doctrine of grace, the doctrines that come out of the doctrine of grace, because of uh, what our study was, has been in Luke, chapter 5, verse 12 through 26, as we've been discussing the, the leper and the blind man, and the necessity of grace. Is it necessary? As you... Uh, as you no doubt understand, we've been talking about uh, Pelagius and his false teaching and, and the things that he has brought into the church. And as we go through and start discussing the defense that Augustine posted, uh, a very good defense, you're going to hear things that we've argued about today. There's nothing new in the sun. When you bring out truth, everybody wants to fight against it. You need to understand this. When truth came into the world, everybody was against it. When Christ came into the world, everybody was against it. Even his own disciples were against him more than they were for him. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, they were kept and drawn and grown. They were raised up. They were cultivated to be the men that God wanted them to be. The Holy Spirit has done that for each one of us. While we were yet rebels, the Bible says, Christ died for us. While we were still in our sin, while we were in rebellion, God drew us to himself. He gave us a new heart while we were still dead. Well, Pelagius, just like everyone else in the entire world, wants their will to be fulfilled, wants their desire to be fulfilled, wants their name to be in life. And even in the Christianity, the Christian circles that we see today, Christians want to have their name in life. They want to have God say, not only well done, thou good and faithful servant, that's not good enough. They want to have God say, you did it all. You did it your way. They want Frank Sinatra to be playing, and they want the, the clap and the applause and the praise to be about them and not about God primarily. Now, they'll want God to have glory, but they want their part in it too. Now, for Pelagius, we've talked about this, he saw... He saw it to the extreme, if you will. He saw it to the extreme that said, well, God's going to get glory, but man deserves all the credit. He deserves all the reward, too. So as we start studying and looking at uh, Augustine's response, this is part two, as we, as we continue, should I say, we're going to look at some of the different uh, teachers and what their responses have been. Uh, I'm going to kind of jump outside of, of Augustine. Uh, we're going to talk about R.C. Sproul and some of the things that he said and some other teachers as well, because I want you to see that our position has not changed. I keep trying to tell these, all these young lessons reform guys, my position has not changed. I've looked at the Word of God, and when God showed me the truth, and when I started studying it, I could say this is a bedrock position because it's always been the position. It's something that we've always held to. True biblical Christianity is not reformed. It is true biblical Christianity. Everything else is the divergence. Everything else is the, is the, the false teaching that's come in that's trying to compromise truth. Reformed, true biblical reformed theology is not reformed. It's just basic Christianity. We see it from Augustine, we see it from Paul, we see it from Peter, we see it from James, we see it from John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We see it in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus taught it. It is the doctrine that came from Christ, it came from God, it came from Adam, it came from Noah, it came from Moses. It came all throughout all of history, and today we want to say, yes, let's compromise and soften it because it's too hard. Augustine said no. Augustine was a prolific writer. I've told you this before. Using the Scripture as a sword, he waged battle for the very soul of the church. And we can't do any less, ladies and gentlemen. We must stand on thus saith the Lord, and we cannot do any less. He fought the battle for the very soul of the church. He defined and defended its doctrines. He stood on thus saith the Lord. When he saw the doctrine and explained it, he would not back down from it. 
So many people today tell us to compromise the doctrines of the church. And what's the mantra today other than who defines marriage? You can't tell me what marriage is. I want to be married. And because I want to be married, I don't have to go God's way because it's not about God because in reality they say there is no God or if there is a God, he's subjected to them. You notice the mantra today is anything goes except for Christianity, except for true biblical Christianity. You know, I'm almost sick to death of the title Reformed. You know why? Because we're not Reformed. We're Christians. We're biblical, Bible-believing, blood-bought, born-again Christians who will stand on the Word. Augustine was not Reformed. He was a biblical Christian. Do you understand the difference? Everything else is the fall. Everything else is the the watered-down truth, the watered-down compromise. Everything else is the false. Augustine stood for the truth. He exalted the height of God's glories and his graces. He would not allow anyone to take away from the glory that was due God. He would not subject man to the futility of trying to live up to the standard that God has set, because no man can do that. He would not say, yes, you can work yourself to greater glories. Yes, you can do it by your own power. And he did not view grace as something that man already had in them, inherent. He spent his life in the good fight that all men of God are called to fight. This is how he fought this most necessary fight. Instead of outright attacking Pelagius, though, he sent long books and letters to many people and talked about the doctrine, talked about the false teaching. He didn't go directly to Pelagius and attack him. He wasn't hate-filled and angry. So many times in these arguments I see anger and hate and bitterness, and I've been involved in some of those. Where you just get so angry. How can't you see this? How can't you see this? The Bible says, what do you have that was not given to you? If it was given to you, why do you boast like it was not given to you? These truths come from the Holy Spirit. They come from God. They come from His Word, from rightly dividing the Word of truth, rightly disseminating the Word of God. They've been taught throughout all history. He would explain why this stuff was wrong. But it took two years for him to finally realize that it wasn't just heretical teaching or false teaching. It was an actual heretic that he was dealing with, a man who was set apart to be self-condemned because the doctrine he held to was not the Word of God. It was the philosophy of men. Vain deceit. He'll explain the heretical position that was problematic or even blasphemous. Like I said, it was two years before he saw that it was Pelagius himself and started talking about that heretic, Pelagius. Augustine cared for God's glory and God's word to be exalted. You see, he didn't say, I think this, this possible this. He said, thus saith the Lord. His, all of his messages are filled with Scripture. All of his discussions are are saturated with the Word of God. They're all saturated with the Word of God, and, and he would take those, those teachings from the Word of God, and he would use it to defend the Word. It wasn't vain philosophy. It wasn't man's own thought. Even today, we see when people want to stand up and give you a new truth, they might give you a verse, but then they put the Bible away. They put it to the side because it's not the most predominant thing in their teaching. Their own thoughts about what they want to think is the most predominant thing. Augustine taught about predestined grace. Remember, I told you the P's there. We started talking about this predestined grace. And starting in 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16, Augustine begins to explain and solidify the doctrines of original sin and total depravity. Now, some of these doctrines, he did not actually give it the title, total depravity. But he says that men are depraved in totality. And what he would teach out of this sermon that he would write and, and that he would give, what he would teach out of this is that we are all condemned sinners. Not saying that we are as wicked as we ever possibly could be, because we can be worse. However, we are completely depraved. He would have to go through these routes and talk about these things in the Scripture because of Pelagius' teaching 
that man is not sinful and man can come to God and we are born as a new Adam. And so he would have to go to the Word and defend the truth of the Word. First Timothy 1, 15 through 17 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserves all a full acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Augustine would say, why did Christ come? He came for, not for your healing, not for your physical ailments. The main reason that Jesus Christ came into the world was to save sinners. Were it not for sinners, Christ would not have come. Verse 16 says, but I received mercy for this reason. Why did Paul say that he had received mercy? Because he was a sinner in need of salvation. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says that in him, Jesus Christ showed his forbearance. He showed and displayed his grace and his mercy, his long-suffering, his kindness, to save even the uttermost. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory, our honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Think about those statements. This is Paul exalting and magnifying God. And Augustine uses this to show that it is God and his grace that saves men who were predestined to be sinners from Adam. Listen to this argument. He says this, there is no reason for the coming of Christ the Lord except to save sinners. Take away disease, take away wounds, and there is no reason for medicine. If the great physician came from heaven, a great sick man was lying ill through the whole world. This sick man is the human race. He who says, I am not a sinner, or I was not, is ungrateful to the Savior. No one of men in the mass of mortals which flowed down from Adam, no one at all of men is not sick. See what he's talking about, that universal depravity, that total depravity of all mankind, that sin nature. No one is healed without the grace of Christ. Why do you ask whether infants are sick from Adam? For they too are brought to the church, and if they cannot run thither on their own feet, they run on the feet of others that they may be healed. Now, of course, we understand that he's talking about infant baptism here. And he uses infant baptism to explain why would we bring uh, these little children into to be baptized for their healing. And what he's talking about is there was a teaching that went on that said that if you baptize the infants, it, it, uh, it mercies them because of the original sin. It, it takes away that original sin. Yeah. Well, Catholics believe more than that, but <laughs> that is part of it. So it is that Augustine did not teach that men had a divine spark of good or that they were good in and of themselves, but that men from Adam and from conception are depraved sinners who are dead in sin and trespass. You've got to think about that. That is so important. Augustine thus defends the position and working upon the holiness and goodness of God shows that God alone is good and holy and that all of men's righteousness, should I say, are filthy rags. Augustine took the, the steps to, to make it clear that we are all depraved sinners. We are all, and that the righteous work that we do cannot compare to the glories of God. Now, he wrote, like I told you, a lot of, a lot of books, and he, he wrote a, a multitude of these different treatises and whatnot, and one of them is a treatise on predestination of the saints. As I told you on Kindle, you guys can go, and it's amazing that we can get this stuff, but you can read through the stuff he taught. Now, the warning again is that you have to disseminate some of the, the good and the bad. Okay? But I want you to listen to this. Where he begins developing the argument is the scripture's teaching of that grace is given in or from eternity past upon certain people that God foreknew and foreordained and predestined. Augustine taught that the calling and election of God is not because we are or will be holy, but rather to make us holy. 
That's a, a very important distinction. God didn't call us because we're going to be holy, but he called us to make us holy. You see the difference? There's a huge difference. He taught about limited atonement and perseverance of the saints and, and preservation of the saints and total depravity. The Pelagian argument was that God alone predestined and elected those who he foresaw would choose him as Lord. So did you catch that? The Pelagian argument is that predestination of God and, and election is based on, on, on uh, prescience. It's, it's based on foreknowledge. To be able to foresee is what they said the foreknowledge is. This is clearly refuted in the scriptures themselves if you look at the golden chain of redemption in Romans 8, 28 through 30. Let's read Romans 8, 28 through 30 and see if we can break this down and, and I want to show you these things. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is known as the golden chain of redemption. And the reason for that is there is a progression from eternity past all the way into eternity future. This speaks of the perseverance of the saints, the preservation of the saints. This speaks of election and predestination and its foundation upon that. How did that happen? What was the means? What was the vehicle of your salvation? Now I want you to listen to this progression as I've kind of written down these things. Very important words that you need to look at. For those who love God. Underline, capitalize the word those. You may want to circle those because it means something. For those who love God. The next one I want to point out. All things work together for good, verse 28. Verse 28 says again, for those. Next one, who are called. Now, this is the effectual call and set apart. This is those who are effectually called and set apart. Now, listen, according to his purpose, capitalize his or underline or put a mark there, his purpose. Now, here's what I want you to see. Verse 29 says, those whom, underline it, hit your line underneath, whom. It, this is, when we talk about foreknowledge, you've heard it said, oh, that just means he looked down through time. Now let's go to the word foreknew. He foreknew. That word is prognosco, P-R-O-G-I-N-O-S-K-O. It's prognosco. It's Pelagius thought that God fore, the God's foreknowledge here means to foresee events in the future. But I want you to notice that even in the very start, it's talking about persons. It's not talking about events. It says, for those whom he foreknew. For those whom. This is personal. This is talking about people, not events. For those people whom he foreknew. Who are the those he's talking about? All the elect, all the predestined. For those whom he foreknew. To foreknow means to know intimately and personally, not to foresee. Now, there is the concept of foreseeing because God uh, foresees and he foreknows. But it doesn't isolate the foreknowledge of God from the foreseeing of God. See, uh, the Pelagian argument, well, let me say the, the semi-Pelagian argument is this. Well, God blinds himself to what you're actually going to do. God actually blinds himself so he doesn't mess with your free will. Can you show me one passage in Scripture that says that? There is not one. Not one passage in Scripture that says that. Prokonosko, uh, Pelagius would say, was that God for, God's foreknowledge here means to foresee. So what he would do is he would change this verse and say, for those whom he has foreseen, not foreknown. To foreknow, to know beforehand, means to have an intimate personal relationship beforehand. Before what? The Bible says before the foundation of the world. 
So, Lisa, what that would mean is before the foundation of the world, God had an intimate personal relationship with you before he created anything. And every avenue of history was the vehicle or the means that God used to bring about your salvation. Every moment in time, every second, every turn, every stumble, every fight, everything, everything in history, God used to bring you to salvation. Wow. God foreknew you intimately and personally on purpose. He could create worlds and worlds, and he has created worlds of life and plants and all these different things all around the, the, entire, the entire universe of, of plants and everything else. But what you don't see is a predestined, called out, foreknown group of people that were set aside for his glory that he might save. He didn't have to do anything with the ficus tree to let it grow. He just threw, some, threw it together and let it grow. He didn't have to, to foreknow and forelove and predestine and preordain its treeness. He just said tree. But he looks at us and he foreordains every moment because we're not made like the animals and the plants. We are made in a completely different way for purpose. He foreknew the prognosco says this, but the entire passage is speaking of people and individuals that God has intimate relationship with. Augustine said in his treatise, predestination is the preparation for grace, while grace is the donation itself. When, therefore, the apostle says, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus in good works, it is grace, but what follows, which God has prepared, that we should walk in them, is predestination, which cannot exist without foreknowledge. Although foreknowledge may exist without predestination because God foreknew by predestination those things which he was about to do. I want you to think about this. The Pelagian, Semi-Pelagian, Arminian position is that God looks down through the quarters of time and that his predestination is based upon foresight. The biblical view is that God's predestination is based on himself alone his knowledge alone of who and what he will do, his plan alone. The Bible says the plan was made before the foundation of the world, and we have to understand, what plan? Just some arbitrary, I'm going to follow along, or was it a predestined select plan? You and I, we don't know what we're going to have for lunch here in a few minutes. We might change our mind and go do something else. But God has set himself a plan for what he's going to do. Now, some people would say, well, then God's limited to what he must do. But wait a minute. Hold on. God can do anything he wants, but when he tells what he's going to do, he doesn't change his mind. Okay? God can do anything he wants, but when he said he's going to do something, he doesn't change his mind. Uh, the evidence of that is Jesus Christ himself. The evidence is Christ himself. He goes on to say this. Although foreknowledge may exist without predestination, because God foreknew by predestination those things which he was about to do. When he said he made those, thing, thing, those things, I'm sorry, he made those things that shall be. Moreover, he is able to foreknow even those things which he himself does not do, as all sins whatever, because although there are some which are in such, uh, such wise sins as that they are also penalties of sin, whence it is said God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which were not convenient. It is not in such a case the sin that is God's, but the judgment. You think about first, uh, the first chapter of Romans, in Romans, it says God gave them over to their sin, right? And because of this, the due penalty of their sin is in them, okay? The, the AIDS, the, the syphilis, the, all the other diseases uh, coming from the sexual sin, the Romans, and all the wickedness is part of that judgment. The judgment's God. God gave them over to their sin. The responsibility for their sin is the fact that they rebelled against God. So God's not 
what he's saying here is God's not responsible for the sin, but he knows about it. He allows those things. It's not like he's jumping up and down saying, hey, let's get deeper and deeper in sin. He's not doing that. He's lording over it. He knows about it. He allows those things, but he allows them because it is judgment that he brings upon the sin and the sinner. Now, there is a purpose, to glorify himself to be just and justify. Number eight, predestined. Here in that list on uh, Romans 8, predestined means to, to predetermine beforehand, which, uh, which God says happened before the foundation of the world, Acts 4, uh, 28, 1 Corinthians 2, 7, Ephesians 1, 5. And in each one of those cases, he's talking about people, persons. You think about it, uh, Acts 4, 28, Peter is, uh, is praying to the Lord, and he says, you know, that all of this happened because you allowed all these people to come in and to kill Christ and whatnot because it happened out of your foreordained will. It happened before the foundation of the world, out of your plan, your will. What happened? The cross? Or that Christ was predestined to come into the world? You see, you can't have one without the other. Either God predestined Christ or he predestined the cross, and Christ just happened to show up. Which one is it? Did he predestine the event of the cross, and Christ just happened to be walking along and, and jumped up there and said, oops, I'm going to do this, I didn't know it? No, he predestined Christ, a personal predestination. Number nine, he says, predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. Go back to the point number five and look at that again. Point number five is according to his purpose. The predestination has a purpose. It's to fulfill his plan. It's to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. And only who can be conformed to the image of the Son of God? Adolf Hitler? All those that are left. All the elect will be conformed to the image of the Son of God. And only the elect. It's kind of like the, the issue of, of, of marriage. Who can be married? By very definition, it must be those who are complementary in marriage, in the partnership for marriage. Marriage is a covenant union between two individuals, and in Christian, Christian circles is three, God and the husband and wife. Marriage is a covenant relationship between two individuals for procreative purpose. That's the definition of the marriage. They must be able to mutually support one another and come together. Two men cannot do that. The definition itself of marriage precludes anything else but the union of husband and wife. Predestination itself precludes anything else but God's foreknowledge of the people that he will save and conform to his image. Not just saving you today, but saving you so that you're conformed to a later time when God will bring his glories into our life and show us to be predestined to be in his image from before the foundation of the world. Now you figure that out. Before the foundation of the world, God chose you and called you out and specifically designed that you would be glorified in Christ. You would have all the gifts, all the rewards, because of what Christ would do in time for us. And at one point in time, you would choose Christ, because Christ chose you. Just mind-blowing. But I think it's so great. That means that God not only foresaw you, but that he loved you. Intimately. Personally. In order that he might, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Uh, Jesus might be exalted as the preeminent God-man. That's the way you can look at that statement in that verse. The, the purpose of your salvation, your election, is not so you can get greater crowns of glory and greater reward, but so that God might be exalted, that Christ would be exalted as the preeminent one of all death and all resurrection and all life. Have people died before Christ? Have Christians died before Christ? Have those who believe in God and are truly saved died before Christ? So it's not talking about he's the first one to die, but he's the most preeminent. He's the most magnified one. And his death brought greater glory to God. And so there's resurrection. And it was predestined. The, predestined, the predestination, it says in uh, point number 11 here, those whom he predestined, he also called. 
That word called is kaleo or kaleo. It's to call someone out of a crowd to communicate with them specially and specifically and individually. This is where we get the idea, as Augustine put it, of the effectual call of God, but you also have the general call. And now, now the Pelagian, the Pelagian, the, the Armenian has a field day going crazy about God's special call of those whom he would call out because then you have to deal with the idea of reformation. And we, I don't have a problem dealing with that. Every single one of us deserve hell, and God in his great grace saves who he will. He mercies whom he will mercy. He graces who he will grace. The Bible tells us in Romans, that we, uh, Romans 9 that we are all part of that lump of clay. We are that big pile of rotten sin, dead. That we are all by our very nature and act dead in sin as a lump of clay. All men doing nothing good. And God saves us, pulls us out, and he makes us, remakes us into what he wants. Will the thing form say to that which has formed him, why do you make me this way? Or will the, the vessel charge the pot? With any injustice? Well, no. Because that's who we are. God just takes that lump of clay and makes it who he wants it to be. That's amazing grace if I ever heard of it. The word kaleo, to be called out specifically for an individual. This is sovereign election. That word called, when you see that God has called, many are called but few are chosen. The idea of being called is part of the electing process. Many people are called. Now let's define this out. Many are called but few are chosen. In this passage, it says that, that those who are called out, he predestined, he also called, but he doesn't stop there. Not only does he call them, he calls them for a purpose to be justified and sanctified. Pelagius taught that God's election of all who would be saved was based solely upon his looking through time to see the free will actions of each individual. So by this, election would be based upon what God saw that you would do as the act of your own free will. Here's the problem. If God had to look down through time, I've, I've told you guys about this before, I don't want to get on tape, or on audio. If God had to look down through time to see what you were going to do, to see that he can elect you, so what does that say about God? I have a couple of statements I want to make about that. Number one, it says that God does not know all. He's not omniscient. Omni-knowledge. He doesn't know everything. It denies his sovereignty immediately. It clearly denies omniscience. And it makes time itself God. You see, anything that is greater in power than God is by very definition God. And what we're saying as the Pelagian or the semi-Pelagian, the Armenian, is that God had to go to time and ask time about something he didn't know, something that time itself knows. No, it could be. Yeah, you could look at it that way. Because, because of our will, our act. We are the one that sovereignly chooses. Now, but you got to understand here, but we can resist God and we can deny God. That, you're right. That does make us, us uh, God in this. But basically what it says is, is all creation is God, all of time is God, and God is only God of creating possibilities. Think about it. Because God couldn't create factual truth. God couldn't create dogmatic time. God couldn't create a single stream of time to happen exactly by his own predestined plan. He would have to create possibilities, infinite universes, and whatever happens, happens. Exactly. It comes out on the other end for his good. He chooses that. It comes out on the other end, and everybody likes him, and he's happy, and they're happy, and, and all of a sudden he's good. But here's the point. When God is infinitely loving and looks down the corners of time, and this is, is, is you know, this peanut butter idea, bleh, everywhere. He loves everything, and he just loves, love, 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 love. And he's looking down through the corners of time. The question has to be asked. All of those that don't choose him and they end up in hell for eternity, 
if there is any. On the Pelagian side, there isn't. The semi-Pelagian side, there is. The pure Armenian side, we go back to there isn't. The Rob Bells, love wins. But if you look at it and you even hold to any doctrine of hell, does that mean that for all eternity that God loves every single person that's in hell and he wants them to be saved so badly and he's crying from heaven completely unfulfilled that when he sent his son into the world and predestined to save all those that would, would save themselves through their faith, that God died, Jesus died for all mankind, and because Jesus died for everybody, does that mean that his death didn't actually atone, that it didn't actually pay a debt, that it only made it possible? You see the implications of denying election and predestination, of denying God's sovereignty, of his foreknowledge, and denying what it means? See, when you deny truth, you destroy all the lines of truth down through the ages. It's the same principle we've talked about a thousand times with the purified water and a one drop of sewer. When you taint it, you taint the whole thing. Listen to, listen to this. We talked about the, the, the idea here, the idea here that, that Pelagius says that, that election was based upon what he would see throughout time. This, it denies his sovereignty, his clear omniscience. But another question that the Pelagian Armenian alike must answer is this. If God is God's election of any person or every person is based on his foreseeing or uh, prescience, uh, the, the, the fact that he would look down through time and see what you were going to do, Lisa or, or Gary, if he's looking down through time to see what you're going to do, and he elects you before the foundation of the world now, before he's created anything, he looks down through time and asks omnipotent time what's going to happen. And he looks down through time and he sees what you're going to do. And he elects you in eternity past and fulfills all of the future things based upon his, what he's seen. If that's the way it happened, then what are the chances of you not being saved at the moment that God saw you would be saved in which he elected you? None. Absolutely impossible. Either that or two, one of two people is lying or deceived. You see, we talk about, the, the Armenian talks about resistible grace. The reason we say grace is irresistible is because it has its effect. The reason we say it's irresistible is because God cannot be thwarted and he cannot see error. He cannot be tricked or lied to. He cannot just look down through time. And any way you want to look at this, either he looks down through time and sees what you're going to do, and that is exactly what's going to happen, and you have no choice in it. Or God, in his infinite love before the foundation of the world, chose to create all the events to take place that the gospel would come to you through Jesus Christ, who would be your Savior in time, and in time he would send someone that would give you the gospel and save you because of his great love with which he loved us before the foundation of the world, that he would sovereignly choose his own son to die on the cross to be the Savior, to be the Messiah, so that you might be saved in time. If God didn't do it that way, he didn't do it at all. If God didn't save you based on that, then he didn't save you, and there is no salvation. I contend with you that if you deny the clear biblical teaching that we talked about, then you've denied salvation at all. You've denied salvation at all. Unless you want to contend that you have actually saved yourself, like the Pelagian argument says you don't need God. The Pelagian argument says you don't need God. This view denies God's sovereignty in its basis. Uh, point number uh, 12 in this explanation of uh, Romans 8, those whom he called, he also justified. You see, many are called, but few are chosen. But all those that are called and chosen are justified. You can't be a called-out person who is not justified in the sight of God. If God calls you, irresistible grace, if God has called you out to be his, and he's justified you, and he's sanctified you, and he's washed you, and he's made you a new creature in Christ, and he's uh, predestined to conform you to the image of God so that you will stand before God in heaven in eternity future, let me ask you a question. 
If he done that, verse uh, point number 13, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's doxeo. Uh, where we get the word doxology from that. If you look at that, those whom he has glorified is to make glorious or to bestow honor on those. If he has chosen before the foundation of the world to call you out, to choose you, to predestine you, to elect you, to justify you, to, to cleanse you, to make you righteous for the purpose of glorifying you, then can salvation be thwarted if salvation is finished in the glories to come, in heaven to come? You see, salvation, we've got to understand terms. Salvation is not, oh, I asked Jesus into my heart. Oh, I said a prayer. Oh, I did that. You've heard people say, when you're talking to them, witnessing to them, oh, I did that. What did you do? You see, salvation is not today, but it has its start at a point in time, but in God's predestined plan, he saves you at a point in time for a future event. He saves you for all eternity. Once God has, once you have been born again, you cannot be unborn again. Does that make more sense than just to say saved? Because everybody says saved. Yeah, you can't be unbirthed, exactly. You know, the idea that Jesus was, he was talking to Nicodemus, you must be born from above. It's by the power of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, something you don't know about. It's something that the Holy Spirit does, that God does. And once you've been born again, you cannot be unborn. You see, to be born again means to be born unto salvation. What is salvation? Every single person that I've ever talked to, you start talking about salvation, yes, I'm saved. Wait a minute. Salvation is from what? To be saved means you're saved from the very wrath of God in eternity future. In the time of the future, I said eternity future. I probably shouldn't use that term. To be saved from the day of the Lord, the day of God's wrath, when he will judge the world in righteousness. To be saved today means that you are eternally saved, that you're always saved, that you're saved unto the day of the Lord. That when you stand before God, you don't have to be in fear. You can say, I am saved because of Christ and what you did on the cross for me. Not because of my works of righteousness that I have done, but because of the grace of God. When, when Augustine is talking about these teachings and he's bringing these out, uh, he goes to John 17, 22, talking about to be glorified. The glory you have given to me, I have given to them. It's not something we work for. It's a gift, a gift of grace. You see that? Everything is a gift of grace. I want to read to you R.C. Sproul. It just takes just a minute. I want to read this to you. In contrast with the foreknowledge view of predestination, the Reformed view asserts that the ultimate decision for salvation rests with God and not with man. It teaches that from all eternity, God has chosen to intervene in the lives of some people and bring them to saving faith and has chosen not to do that for other people. From all eternity, without any prior view of human behavior, without any prior view of human behavior, God doesn't look at what you do. God's sovereign act of election and predestination is based on himself and his desire to have you. I mean, you think about it. Can he look at you and say, you're better than this person? You know what? I like this person better. You know, I like that shirt. I'm going to save them. No, he's not a respecter of person. Therefore, his election is not based upon us and what we do. Okay? The ultimate uh, destiny of the individual is decided by God before that individual is even born and without depending ultimately on, upon the human choice. To be sure, a human choice is made, a free human choice, but the choice is made because God first chose to influence that elect to make the right choice. The basis of God's choice does not rest in man, but solely in the good pleasure of, his divine, of God's divine will. Romans uh, 9.16. In the Reformed view of predestination, God's choice precedes man's choice. We choose him only because he first chose us. The Bible says that clearly. Without divine predestination, without divine inward call, the Reformed view holds that nobody would ever choose Christ. You've heard me say this. 
a man cannot choose Christ because he will not choose Christ, but he will not choose Christ because he cannot. You've heard me say that many times. It's not very confusing. You will not because you don't have the will to choose Christ, but you cannot because you refuse to exercise the will to choose Christ. It's both. You're in such rebellion that you will not. You, you, can't, you can't muster enough energy to want to. Nobody wants Christ. This is a view of predestination that rankles so many Christians, and I'm going to say everybody in the world. This is a view that raises serious questions about man's free will and God's fairness. Remember, God's not fair if he makes me do this. I'm a robot. I'm a puppet. Okay? This is a view that provokes so many to anger and charges of fatalism and determinism and so on. The Reformed view of predestination understands the golden chain as follows. From all eternity, God foreknew his elect. He had an idea of their identities in his mind before he ever created them. He not only foreknew them in the sense of having a prior idea of their personal identities, but he also foreknew them in the sense of foreloving them. We must remember that when the Bible speaks of knowing, it often distinguishes between simple mental assent or awareness of a person and a deep, intimate love of the person. It's impossible to say that God foresees man and saves based upon that because he foresees everything. To go at any point in time, God knows exactly who's going to be born in ten minutes from now. And everything about them, when they're going to be conceived, he knows every person's going to be born forever and everything they're ever going to do. Now, is it just based on prescience and his knowledge, or is it based on his will? Now, think about that. Is it based upon his will? If it's based upon his will, then we have to come to the position of God's predestined hand in everything. Think of, think of it like this, of a king who wills that all men in his kingdom will do a certain thing. And they, he says that they shall do this, they will do these certain things. In his authority, he has the ability to exercise, to, to have them do what he wants, because he's the king, he's the sovereign. And I've said this before, in God, even the thoughts, every moment in time, the Bible says, is by his will. Amen? I want to recommend some books to you. R.C. Scroll, I just read this, Chosen by God. This will help you. Okay? It's on the email, uh, if you guys look at it, Chosen by God. Dr. James White is the Potter's Freedom. It is a fabulous book that will help you. Martin Luther's The Bondage of the Will. Uh, still Thomas and Quinn, The Five Points of Calvinism. That is the book that caused me to realize what I was looking at. Uh, the Complete Works of St. Augustine. Now, I want to give a disclaimer. There's many of the teachings that carry into the Roman Catholic doctrine. That, he was a, that was a foundation. The Creed and Confessions of the Reformed Faith. Just some of the books uh, that I would recommend to you. Another one that if you haven't read it, I want to recommend Institutes of the Christian Religion. You can get it on Kindle for free. The Institutes of the Christian Religion. It's John Calvin. It's a huge volume. It takes you some time, but it is so clear. Since we got a little bit of a late start, I want to get through this with predestination and, um, and um, talking about uh, prevenient grace. Um, I, I want to get through these two because I, I've got the next two subjects for next week, and I don't want to belabor the point, so give me just a little bit early, guys. Augustine uses Jesus Christ himself as a marvelous example of grace and predestination. Jesus was predestined to be the Redeemer, according to Genesis, the great high priest, the mediator between God and men, the justifier, the sacrificial lamb, the scapegoat, Emmanuel, the Messiah, the virgin-born son, the seed of David, the tribe of Jesse. He was going to be the one that came out of those tribes. He was going to be the, uh, according to uh, Isaiah, he was actually going to be God in the flesh. He was going to be the Lord Sabaoth. He, according to scriptures, God predestined this before the foundation of the world. The scriptures tell us that, that he was slain before the foundation of the world. So the predestination of God, uh, of Jesus Christ, the God-man who would become the God-man, 
was before the foundation of the world. Augustine uses Jesus Christ himself. He writes this, let us then understand the calling whereby they became elected, they become elected. Not those who are elected because they have believed, but who are elected that they might believe, that they may believe. For the Lord himself so sufficiently explained this calling when he says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. What does that mean if it means anything at all? Guys, think about this. You didn't choose me, I chose you. It's not just talking about the choice of the apostles, though that is in mind as well, but sovereign election means that he chose them to be apostles. It can't just mean, oh, well, he just chose the apostles. No, it can't just mean that. He had to choose their salvation as well, otherwise they couldn't be apostles. They couldn't be his disciples in truth to become apostles if he didn't choose them to be his elect. Amen? For if they had been elected because they had believed, they themselves would certainly have first chosen him by believing in him. You ever think about that? So, uh, first of all, they'd crack the water immediately, right off the bat. <clears throat> so, they would, uh, so that they should, uh, should deserve to be elected. But he takes away this supposition altogether when he says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And yet they themselves, beyond a doubt, chose him when they believed in him, when it is not for any other reason that he says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. I mean, Augustine's point is clear. Another strong case for sovereign predestination election is found in the Lamb's Book of Life. I want to point this out to you. We're going to start in Revelation and work backwards. Revelation 17, uh, 8 says this. The beast that you saw and is and is not and is about to, I'm sorry, and is not and is about to rise from the bottom of the pit and go to destruction and the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Get to this book of life, whose names were not written in the book of life before, from before the foundation of the world. That book was written down, everyone, in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw the great white throne, and him who sat on the, who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And we'll continue on. And the dead were judged by what was written in the book, and according to what um, they had done, and they were they were judged by what was written in the books. So yeah, the books were open, and then the book of life was open. The dead were judged by the books of their works. Now listen. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades uh, gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Ephesians 4.3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names were written in the book of life. Jesus said this in Luke uh, 10.20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, talking about the power they had, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names have been written in heaven. Daniel 12, 1 through 2 says this. <clears throat> At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has, been, who, is, who has charge of your people. And there shall be, uh, shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since the nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust from the earth shall awaken, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Um, you see this in Exodus 32. 
32 and 33. Psalm 69, 28. Isaiah 4, 3. Ezekiel 13, 9. Philippians 4, 3. Uh, I believe Hebrews 12, uh, 23 as well. Well, I want you to understand about each one of these cases. It's talking about the Lamb's Book of Life, the book that God wrote down of all the people whom he would save, all the people from before the foundation of the world, throughout all history, that would ever believe in Christ, ever believe in the Messiah, ever believe in salvation, ever be the blood-bought, born-again saints of Almighty God, from, from Abraham all the way through to Adam and Eve, who believed the Messiah would come. All of those throughout all history, you, me, and everyone that would ever believe, their names have been written in the book. Every person whose name is not in the book experiences the second death. And the second death is not hell, but the lake of fire. The lake of fire which burns forever, the justice of Almighty God. Augustine worked very hard to defend the Word of God. And you and I can look in the Scriptures and see that we can defend the Word of God with this truth. This is not something that we started. This is not something that came from our idea. It's from the Word of God itself. The next thing I want to talk to you about prevenient grace. Um, I want to give you the very first disclaimer is a warning. <clears throat> I want to give you a warning. Uh, James White rightly points out that the prevenient grace that you're going to hear about in all of the teaching today in the churches is not in Scripture. It's not biblical. It's, it's nothing scriptural. Augustine points out that Pelagius' idea of prevenient grace is error. Listen to what he says. Although he does say that prevenient grace is true, in the fact that prevenient, meaning that it comes before. Remember I told you about this? Prevenient grace is that grace which comes before. Well, in the true biblical Christian sense, prevenient grace is grace which comes before the foundation of the world. Before anything ever happened, God graces us with grace. What we just read is the idea of prevenient grace. God, before the foundation of the world, comes in, and he works every single event in history to elect those whom he's going to elect. In other words, God in his eternity past has elected, and the vehicle of that election is the prevenient grace. However... Pelagius, the Semi-Pelagian, the, the Roman Catholic Church, and all through history has taken and destroyed that prevenient grace of God to mean God working right before, God working just before. This little, I, I want to read this from Augustine. The effects of grace are according to its nature. Taken as a whole, it is the recreated principle set forth from God for the recovery of man from his slavery to sin and his reformation in, divine, in the divine image. Considered as to the time of its giving, it is either operating or cooperating grace. Now, here's what he means by that. Grace is monergistic in salvation, ultimately uh, monergistic. In other words, mono meaning one, jism working, one work, right? So you have monergism meaning one working. God alone works salvation and grace. Now, remember what we just said. Grace for salvation from the is from eternity past to eternity future, Okay. However, sanctification is part of what we do, and that's the synergistic side. Synergistic side of, of salvation is the work that God calls us to. That's why we're responsible. That's, that's what he's saying here. He's saying that grace, considered at the time of its giving, it is either operating or cooperating. Either grace is the vehicle of your salvation based upon his definite plan and foreknowledge, based upon his determined decision to save you from the wrath of God, the day of judgment, Romans or, or Revelation chapter 20, from that day, that's when you're saved, right? When you say, oh, Jesus saved me, okay, so you're here. Revelation chapter 1, you stand before God, you're going to heaven, you're sure of it. You know that you have salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone. You know that when you stand before a holy God and he judges you, he will see that Christ is the one that has you, not you. Is that what you're saying? Then okay. That's the grace that is modern that goes throughout our entire lives. 
However, the synergistic grace of God is that which he, he bestows upon us where we get to work in cooperation with his will. God's given us a new heart and a new spirit, and we work with him. Either the grace that first enables the will to choose the good or the grace that cooperates with the already enabled will to do good. It is therefore also called either prevenient or subsequent grace. It is not to be conceived as a series of disconnected divine operations in men as bringing forgiveness of sin, faith, which is the beginning of all good, love to God, progressive power of good works, and perseverance to the end. In any case, in all of its operations alike, just because it is power from on high uh, and the living spirit of the new and recreated life, it is irresistible and indefectible. In other words, if God's graced you with grace, if he's prevened in life from eternity past, and, and if he's uh, done all the work necessary to save you, that salvation is irresistible. It is all-inclusive in what God does. Now, here's the problem. I want to just disclaimer out there again. You will not hear that taught. I will guarantee you, you go listen to this a thousand different ways, and what I just said to you, what I just read to you from Augustine, is not taught. Because it was hijacked. To mean, number one, this is the, this is the Wesleyan view. This is the Augustine, or not Augustine, the Pelagian view. This is the Semi-Pelagian view. This is the Arminian view. It says this. I'll give you six, six ways that they define prevenient grace. It is bestowed upon all men at birth. Pelagius taught that, remember? Okay? And because we're all new atoms in Christ. It mitigates the effects of the fall, uh, mainly by restoring man's free, a libertarian free will that is able to respond positively to the gospel by exercising faith. Then I kind of highlighted this because this restored grace, uh, because of this restored grace, we can take the first steps on, of our own will to do good or towards God. It allows men to be enlightened concerning the truth of the gospel. Okay? So think about what I just said. And that sounds really good. Have you been enlightened by the gospel? It allows them to be enlightened concerning the truth of the gospel, but not given the inner light of the gospel. In other words, you get to see the truth from afar off and still make your own sovereign free choice, your, your uh, un- immutable free choice, that you can choose the first good. You can still see it, and you can still reject it. It is not saving grace that leads to faith, which does not save. Uh, it is not saving grace, but it leads to faith, which does save. Do you get that? Uh, grace is not saving grace, but it leads to faith. It leads to faith. In other words, it shows you that you have the ability to be saved. Notice that it leads by the act of your faith to save. It's by your faith, your act of faith. Well, faith was a free gift by grace. It's a free gift. I thought repentance and faith and belief was a free gift. If it's a gift, it's not of you, it's of the giver. Amen? Okay? It is resistible by virtue of the fact that it enables the ability of the will to act contrary to it if one so chooses. Catch that? It is resistible by virtue of the fact that it enables the ability of the will to act contrary to one chooses. So in other words, before the foundation of the world, God looks down to the court of time, he sees you, he's going to save you, and he's doing everything he can in, his, in all of history to save you. And that means he has to be working in the lives of everybody else in your family line, all the way back to Adam and Eve, right? And everybody else in the family line, they can have their own free will too. So he's trying to get to you, Gary, to save you. And if everybody cooperates with his plan, and if everything works out, he can get to you and save you. But he gets to you, and he says, okay, I'm, making every, I'm, I'm moving in your life. I'm doing everything. I'm bringing all the people in, all the right influences, all the good stuff. I'm keeping all the bad people out. And y'all let a little bad thing happen to you. Maybe you'll run to me, maybe not. And he keeps doing these little, just moving back and forth. And eventually, maybe you'll choose him. And right up to the point of your death, remember, before it's everlasting too late, choose Christ. You know, on your very deathbed, you can choose Christ. No, you cannot. If Christ hasn't chosen you, you're not going to choose Christ on your deathbed. 
my next door neighbor refused him to the moment of his death because he refused. He knew he was going to die. knew he was going to stand before God. knew that there was judgment coming and absolutely refused it. Did not want God taking this. That's the, that's the state of the whole world. This, the, this idea of prevenient grace, it says this, that God comes up to you, Gary, and he, he's doing everything he can to save you. He is so stretching out and pleading and calling every moment of your life, oh, please be saved. And I'm going I'm to give it all this good stuff in, in your life. And maybe I'll have a couple bad things happen in your life. But then I step back and say, but it's your choice. You do whatever you want to do. Prevenient grace. God chooses you, and you can reject it. Because every act of his will is thwartable by the man. You know what the, I heard many hymns say one day? God can do nothing unless you give him permission. God can do nothing unless you give him permission. You give permission for God to work on this earth. It precedes regeneration and thus the spiritual transformation of the believer. In other words, prevenient grace by the act of your will precedes your regeneration. Think about it like this. God looks at you and he will save you if you believe. Think about what that means. For an unbeliever to be a believer, he must be a believing unbeliever. Does that make sense? Well, that makes sense, but you know what I'm saying. For you to be saved, you must believe. But in order for you to believe, you must be saved. For you to be saved, you must believe. In order for you to believe, you must be saved. In other words, you have to believe. An unbeliever must be a believer in order for them to be a believer who is an unbeliever. And, and, and you're going, what? God saves believers on account that they believe. God saves unbelievers on, on account that they believe. You see how confusing that is? It's impossible? A dead man must make himself alive in order to be for God to make him alive. Lazarus, and think about it like this. Lazarus, come forth. I'm good. I'm all right. I mean, that's what it's saying. This last... <laughs> I, I need to rest for a few more minutes. I think it. I need a shower. You know, just hold on, God. I'm not ready yet. I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying death for a little while. Think about it. Lazarus, come forth. I'm good. And, and that's what is so... Just to be honest with you, self-arrogant, self-willed, self-righteous about this whole idea. When you, when you talk to people about this, listen to what Wesley says. For all you people that just love to quote Wesley. John Wesley and Charles Wesley uh, were together, but here's what Wesley said about prevenient grace. No man sins because he has not grace, but because he does not use the grace which he has. You know what that says? If you exercise the grace that God's given, you don't have to sin. Well, this is before salvation. Elsewhere, he writes this that there is a measure of free will supernaturally restored to every man together with the supernatural life which enlightens every man that comes into the world. The problem with that? Even those who are spiritually darkened, even those that God says he's hardened and he's blinded. Uh, John Wesley developed the doctrine of prevenient grace, his own doctrine of prevenient grace. Now, I'm, told, I'm telling you guys, uh, Augustine just tore people up with this understanding of prevenient grace. And they stole it and hijacked it. Because here's why. It took 1,300 years before solid, loud, strong men stood back up and said, never again. Men that would be willing to die for truth. Think about it. Luther said, that's fine, you kill me, I don't care, but I'm not backing down. Here I stand and I can do no other. I will not back down. Think about it. That was 1,300 years later. From Augustine until... Luther, you had some people that were standing up. 
But you know why Luther stood? Because he went back and read what Augustine had written. He couldn't believe what Augustine had taught. Calvin quotes more from Augustine than any other. Next week we're going to look at um, we're going to look um, at perfecting grace, sanctifying grace. I had to use all the P's, so and then preserving grace, right? The sovereign grace of God and, and his, his salvation, uh, the third perseverance, if you want to put it that way. And, and we're going to look at what what Augustine taught about those things. This is not something that we thought of. This is not something that we put in the Bible. I, you know, I hesitate to. to to listen to a lot of people that just want to go back to Luther and Calvin because they're only going back a few hundred years. Go back 2,000 years. This has always been taught. This is true biblical Christianity. This is where our faith starts and ends. We don't have to change the doctrines of belief. We just got to stand up for them. We got to stand up to them. So when somebody says, it's both, you know what we say? No, it's not. We're not Johnny come lately. Every word. It could have purpose. Anyway, um, so look, look, look at that for yourself, and let's pray. Heavenly Father, when I come before you, I just magnify you. And I, I pray, God, that we did some justice to uh, the uh, truth of your sovereignty, that we've done some justice to the, the, your sovereign hand and your electing purpose. God, I do pray that, that your name is glorified and, and all that we say and do that your name is magnified and exalted. God, I pray for our church. I pray for the, the people that are here. God, that we were able to stand up on the truth of the Word of God. For, for everyone that's going to hear these messages I pray that nobody thinks that it's anything arrogant, but, God, that they'll come to see the truth of the kindness and grace of God alone who chose to save us before the foundation of the world. God, magnify yourself in our lives. Exalt your name. Glorify yourself. Lord, we we lift you up and and exalt you, and Lord, we, we, we bless your name. In Christ's name, amen.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.